Another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. I am Virgil Walker. And I am Daryl Harrison. What's going on, Omahi? <laughs> what up, what up? You ran the you ran the whole scale that time, bro. You all the way up and all Dude, the way down. I did huh? I did one of those Formula One racetrack, you know, squirrely little <laughs> <laughs> I went to oh, Formula man. One racetrack right on that one, man. It took okay. you up and down, up and all down. All the way around, around the track. All the way indeed, around the track. bro. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> What's bro, going on, V? Not much, man. It is so, so good to be back with you behind the microphone once again for fans of the Just Taking Podcast. It's good to be back, man. I, I know you and I have both been incredibly busy and uh, you know, moving and shaking and doing all kinds of things. What's going on in your world, man? Well, man, not much going on with me right now, right this minute. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, as we record this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast on Sunday, April 24th, 2022, I happen to be halfway, man, through a two-week break of vacation. So two weeks off from work, two weeks just taking, stepping back from everything, man, getting rested up, getting rejuvenated mentally, physically, spiritually. So uh, so I'm good to go, man. I'm feeling really rested, feeling really ready to go, you know. And, and for the episode that we're doing, we're about to get into it in a few minutes. But for the episode that we're doing, the topic that we just happen to be dealing with on this episode today, mm-hmm. this is episode 118 of the Just Thinking F- Podcast. I needed that rest, bro, yeah. because we're about yeah. to, man, if folks think, folks think we, we go deep, if they think to this point that the Just Thinking Podcast, we go deep on some subjects. Yeah. Ooh-wee, bro, for this one right here. You're going to need a shovel. We're going so deep. You're going to need a shovel to listen to this one. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. I'm glad to be back with you. It's been been crazy. I did kind of the same thing that you did. I know you taken have taken a little bit of a vacation. I took one a little bit, maybe two and a half weeks ago. I enjoyed some time to unplug. It was the first time in, in years, maybe five, six years, that I've actually taken a full seven days off from work. I'll take like a, like a long weekend, you know, maybe a Wednesday yeah. through through su- Sunday or something like that. Right. But I've never taken a Saturday through Saturday. And so this was one yeah. of those times where I packed up the family. Uh, we left and just had a really good time, really good time to, to, to just unwind, unplug, stayed away from social media as best I, as best I could, you know, as, yeah. as to not get into the, to, to the chaos and the crazy that's going on out there. But it was really good, but it's good to be back, man. It's good to be back here. And, and connect with you. I've got a number of announcements, man. I'm, I'm, if you have no objections, I'll run through these so we can get uh, into our topic. If you're good, bro, I'm gonna do like Katanji Brown Jackson and say, I have no objections, bro. Do your thing. <laughs> 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 I, 
I thought you, I thought you were going to I thought you were going to tell me you you're, you're not a you're not a biologist or 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 radiologist or a podcastology or something like that. I didn't know where you were going. No, I'm not. I, hey, like they used to say on that old commercial, man. I'm not a biologist, but I did stay at a Holiday Express last night. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, let me jump into these announcements. Number one, we first of all want to say thank you so much to our fans, our our family. Uh, the Just Thinking family, who've done such a great job with our first book, Just Thinking About the State. You guys have helped that to be a, a blockbuster with Founders Press, and we're, we're grateful for that. Uh, we're going to ask you, if you're new to the, to the Just Thinking podcast and you have not received your copy, we want you to go online and order yours today. Just You can go to justthinking.me forward slash the state, Just Thinking. Uh, justthinking.me forward slash the state and get your copy of Just Thinking About the State. Uh, in the meantime, we have a, a brand new book. If you haven't taken advantage of it, you want to do so. You'll want to do so. Uh, this was based on our episode about why are you afraid? This episode was incredibly popular. Uh, it, it still is from a standpoint of content and topic and subject matter with all of the issues that are going on from uh, from, from, from you know, the scares with with COVID that we had. Now we're in a new environment with 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 you know the LGBTQIA two S plus plus uh, uh, you know uh, uh, hammock sign plus sign equals sign you know. And so we're dealing with all the drama in school systems. Parents are, are are dealing with all kinds of issues. It really, every time you turn on the news, there's some effort to cause great fear and concern. And so we wanted the, we wanted believers in Christ to know uh, they have they have reason to fear only God and not the issues of man. And so we put this great book together. Why are you afraid? You can get that at g3min.org forward slash why are you afraid altogether? g3min.org forward slash why are you afraid? I want to slow down here because uh, I just came back from from Masters University. You and I, uh, Daryl, have a scholarship that we offer the the students. Uh, if you're if you're a high school senior about to enter uh, a, a college uh, and you're thinking about attending the Masters University, this scholarship is for you. The deadline to apply is April 30th. Uh, there there are forty there's forty thousand dollars in scholarship money over the course of four years. You'll want to participate. The way to do that is to go on masters.edu forward slash just thinking masters.edu forward slash just thinking i just came back from from uh masters university mm-hmm. and uh, and daryl i know i know more times than not bro because yeah. of the fact that i'm in georgia you end up holding it holding it down for me when i can't get back there uh because we we so that you know when 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 we scholarship these students daryl and i mentor uh meet with and connect with these students on a monthly basis and i know whenever i can't be there you're holding it down with those students kind of a in a, in a conference setting and so i had the joy of, of experiencing that as well this time and at school kind of winds down it was a great great time and really enjoyable so if, if you're interested yeah, and, in and that let me just add one thing to that yeah, yeah. on virgil about this about the justin scholarship partnership with the masters university what masters is offering is five four-year scholarships that's good that's, that's good five four-year scholarships so that's forty thousand dollars for five students over four years so you're looking at a total investment on the part of masters university of two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars uh, for five scholarship winners. So I don't want anyone listening out there, especially any parents or any uh, high school seniors who may be interested in applying for the scholarship to think, oh man, they only got one scholarship. I'll never have a shot. Yeah. No, we're offering five. 
Yeah. Five scholarships in partnership with the Masters University. That's all I want to say, V. No, that's great. You guys want to jump on that and take advantage of that as well. Finally, and lastly, we've got just thinking about the Bible, just thinking about the Bible. It is a, it is a, a combo with G3 and just thinking, right? G3 in partnership with just thinking is putting on a regional conference there in Washington, D.C. You do not want to miss this. This is a, a conference about, the, about, about biblical sufficiency. And uh, man, we've got a, we got a crazy lineup. We've got uh, Dr. Stephen Lawson with us, Dr. James White with us, Dr. Josh Bice with us. Uh, uh, my, my brother, Daryl Harrison will be there. And then yours truly will be there. I'm sure we'll have some additions uh, onto that, 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 that roster of, of speakers, but you'll want to be a part of that. Mark your calendar, September 15th through the 17th of 2022 there in Washington, D.C., just thinking about the Bible, a conference on biblical sufficiency. You can go to g3min.org, g3min.org for more information. Man, I feel like we got just so much stuff going on. That's all just what what, what you and I have brewing. And uh, man, excited about it, excited for the opportunities that we're going to be taking advantage of. And so with that said, man, I'm done with all of my announcements. Let me turn it off. Let me turn it over to you, my brother. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for rolling through those announcements, V. You know, we love connecting with our family, like you call mm-hmm. it. We don't we don't mm-hmm. have fans. We have family. We have just yeah. thinking family. Absolutely. And we love to reconnect with them, uh, especially when we're we're on the road, when we're traveling mm-hmm. and can meet them in person to put faces with names, can take pictures, uh, sign books and things of that nature. But we we when we when we're not doing that, when we're not able to do that, we have an opportunity here when we record our monthly episodes to catch our listeners up. Mm-hmm. on what's going on with you and me and what's going on with our ministry and what and who we're partnering with as well. So I appreciate you taking the time to to roll through those updates for the sake of our listeners. And, you know, we were talking offline just a second ago. We have a very, very heavy topic to deal with in mm-hmm. this episode, which is episode number 118 of the Just Thinking podcast. We've titled this episode, A Biblical Response to Perfectionism. But before we, we went live here on, on recording anyway, we were having a bit of a technical issue in the background, I was kind of, I kind of said to you, you know, um, offline and said like, okay, here we go. Here we go. Satan don't want us. Satan doesn't want us dealing with this episode. Bro. Right, right, right. Satan does not want us touching this topic, man. But you know how we say in the black church V. Right. You know what we say, bro. What do we say, brother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The devil creeping in trying to break it down. Break it down for him. Break it down for him. The devil is a I might need some ham and B3. The devil is a lie. <laughs> no, so no, no, say not today. Not, not today. today. So we're gonna we're gonna deal. We're gonna deal with this topic. We titled this episode a biblical response to perfectionism. And I want to say at the outset of this episode, Omaha, that this is without a doubt one of the more difficult topics we've addressed in the four years that the Just Thinking Podcast has existed. For those of you who may be new listeners. The Just Thinking Podcast launched back in December of 2017 with our first episode, and you're listening, by God's grace, right now to episode number 118. And when I'm talking about one of the more difficult topics that we've addressed, the topic that that we're addressing in this episode is perfectionism, as I alluded to before. Um, Not to be confused with the doctrinal matter of Christian perfectionism, sinless perfectionism. That is not what we're talking about in this episode. We're talking about behavioral perfectionism, if I could put it that way. And in light of the fact that this topic is such a difficult topic, I want to let our listeners know that this is not, probably not going to be a feel-good episode for you, okay? 
Let me just say that right out front. This is not going to be a feel-good episode. In fact, my sense is that by addressing the topic of perfectionism, perfectionism in the first place, Omaha, we've placed ourselves in a no-win situation with many people because we're going to be dealing head-on with some very difficult realities that many of our listeners, particularly those who are perfectionists or who have perfectionist tendencies, undoubtedly will take issue with us about. That's just a fact. I'm not naive to that at all. Right. But be that as it may, you and I cannot afford Omaha to place ourselves at the mercy of people's subjective feelings and emotions so that we fail to carry out our God-ordained responsibility in addressing this issue. Mm-hmm. Now, Having said that, it should go without saying that we never give offense intentionally. We never do that. But as careful as, and as cautious as you and, I, you and I may endeavor to be, Omaha, in broaching the topic of perfectionism in this episode, there will still be those who, through no fault of our own, will listen to what we're going to say in this episode through the filter of their subjective emotions and experiences. And that is something that neither you nor I can control. Right. That's out of our control for those folks who respond to this episode in that way. But such is the nature of our sinful hearts, that even when we who are redeemed, even those of us who are saved and secure in Christ, don't always want to be presented with, let alone be confronted with, the truth about how we demonstrate and exhibit the remaining sin that indwells each of us. We take offense at that. As the late Dr. Jerry Bridges writes in his book titled The Blessings of Humility, quote, If we are repentant of our sin, we can take that sin to the cross and experience immediate forgiveness. That's 1 John 1, 9. We can experience the truth that God will not count that sin against us. That's Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. He will not despise a broken and contrite heart. That's Psalm 51, 17. Because of this, Bridges says, we can be honest with ourselves about our sin. We do not need to minimize it or try to excuse ourselves. Instead, we can see it for the vile and despicable act of rebellion against God that it really is. Our problem, however, is that we do not recognize the sin that still remains in us. We do not recognize that failing to love God with all our being and to love our neighbors as ourselves would bring us under the curse of God apart from the work of Christ on our behalf. Escalations 3.10. We do not see the immense chasm that exists between the infinite holiness of God and our own righteousness on our very best days. In short, we do not see ourselves as sinners, saved sinners to be sure, but still practicing sinners in need of the forgiving grace of God every day, unquote. That was the late Dr. Jerry Bridges from his book titled The Blessings of Humility. Now, for the believer in Jesus Christ, it's important for us to understand that sin no longer reigns in us, but it does remain. Sin no longer reigns, but it does remain. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. That reality is important for every believer to remember, not only believers who regard themselves as perfectionists. For as one of the more underrated Puritan theologians of the 17th century, Ralph Vinning points out in his classic book, The Sinfulness of Sin, quote, Sin has infected all ages. It is almost as old as the world, from Adam to Moses, and so on to this day. It is the plague which has lasted for thousands of years. Indeed, what is more, 
Not one man has escaped it. All kinds of men, all ranks, high and low, rich and poor, kings and beggars have been infected by it. That's Romans 3, 9 and 10. The wise and learned as well as the foolish and illiterate. Who is there that has lived and not sinned our Savior accepted? That's Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. If any man says he has not sinned, he sins in saying so. That's 1 John 1, 10. By one man, sin came into the world. That's Romans 5, 12. But since not one man, but every man has sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3, 23. And death came upon all, inasmuch as all had sinned. That's Romans 5, 12 again. All men have died of this plague. Indeed, our Lord and Savior would not have died if he had not been made sin for us. Moreover, this leprosy has not only spread itself on mankind as a whole, but on the whole of man. Every part of man is infected. It has made flesh and spirit filthy. That's 2 Corinthians 7, 1. From the crown of the head to the sole of the foot, there is not one sound part in him, for all his members are servants to sin. Again, that was a Puritan Ralph Venning from his book, The Sinfulness of Sin. So even we who are believers in Jesus Christ are often resistant to hearing from other believers and also from God himself through his word, some uncomfortable truths about ourselves, which is to say uncomfortable truths about who we still are on the inside in the hidden person that we don't want anyone else to know about, that person who resides in the deepest recesses of our heart that we want to keep hidden away so as to present a facade to others because we may have to be accountable for who we really are. Now, I want to urge our listeners to consider that reality in light of these words from the 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who in his daily devotional titled Morning and Evening for the reading dated July 4th titled Clean Hands, said this, quote, true religion is heart work, heart work. We may wash the outside of the cup and the platter as long as we please, but if the inward parts be filthy, we are filthy altogether in the sight of God, for our hearts are more truly ourselves than our hands are. The very life of our being lies in the inner nature, and hence the imperative need of purity Within, unquote. That was Charles Hedden Spurgeon from his devotional morning and evening for the reading dated July 4th titled Clean Hands. Now, the irony, Omaha, of what Charles Spurgeon said there, that our hearts are more truly ourselves than our hands are, is that the perfectionist behaves as if the exact opposite were true. And what I mean is that the perfectionist believes that their hands, with hands being a metaphor for the works that they and others performs, the perfectionist believes that their hands are more truly themselves than their hearts are. But what is fundamental for the perfectionist to understand is that their perfectionism is a heart issue. Listen to what Dr. Greg E. Gifford, associate professor of biblical counseling at the Masters University, says in his book titled Hearts and Habits, subtitled How We Change for Good, quote, the Bible speaks to the reasons why you do the things you do. Even in regard to why you develop habits, it suggests that you do the things you do because of what is taking place inside of your own heart. 
the heart has been defined this way. The heart is the governing center of a person. When used simply, it refers to the unity of our inner being. And when used comprehensively, it describes the complexity of our inner being as composed of mind, what we know, desires, what we love, and will, what we choose. To put it simply, the heart is the control center of our lives, influencing all that we do, unquote. That was Dr. Greg E. Gifford from his book, Hearts and Habits, How We Change for Good. Thoughts on my to this opening, bro? Man, I thought the, the, your opening was just a, a strong case to begin our topic uh, on perfectionism, because as we open this particular subject, uh, much like we do in, in, in other spaces, we've got to lay some groundwork. Uh, you can't just dive into the issue of perfectionism and begin rattling things off. It really begins with an understanding of, of the magnitude and the weightiness of sin. Um, we have to expose people to the sinfulness of sin prior to really looking at a particular sin in one's personal and private life. Um, it's because of that, that, that as we're exposed to that, that we begin thinking through um, how we've offended God and, and what we've done to separate ourselves. So as we begin to discuss the subject of perfectionism, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's wise, even before we start to talk about perfectionism, to address the issue of sin. And the question some might ask is, well, wh- why is that important? Well, the reason it's important is because the perfectionist, if they are indeed in Christ, they have one of two choices as they process the life the, the, the life that they're currently living uh, with regard to this particular sin. Either they're forced to minimize the sin by justifying their sinfulness or their wickedness actually tortures them. And it tortures them away from the brokenness that leads to repentance as they rely on their own abilities mm-hmm. They're relying on their own abilities to atone for their sin rather than the finished work of Jesus Christ himself. Now, in his book on holiness, J.C. Ryle um, addresses the issue of sin in chapter one in his book. Um, and he explains the deceitfulness of sin in this way. He says this, quote, we are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors, saying, I am your deadly enemy. And I want to ruin your your I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh, no, he says, sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss, like 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 Joe, like Job uh, with an outstretched hand and flattering words. The forbidden fruit seems seems good and desirable to Eve, yet it cast her out of Eden. The walking idly on this palace roof seemed harmless to David, yet it ended in adultery and murder. Sin rarely seems sinful at first. Let us then watch and pray, lest we fall into temptation, end quote. Now, Rouse has it right. The deceitfulness of sin is very present in the lives of believers. So, so let, me, let me say that again. The presence of sin is very evident in the life of believers. It, it's not that we become believers and we, and we don't sin anymore. We still sin. Mm-hmm. And that sin has, is as deceptive as it, as, it, as it was prior to our salvation. Fortunately for us, mm-hmm. the regenerate heart allows us to, to be transformed and conformed into the image of Christ, recognizing our sin with the hope that rather than grabbing the, the, the idol of perfectionism, 
that we would grab the hand of the perfection of Christ himself. As I was in California, man, and uh, at the Master's University this past week, I worked with our Just Thinking Scholarship students. We mentioned them earlier, Daryl. You had assigned them actually this reading from J.C. Rao's book on holiness. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And as as we were walking through chapter one, uh, which I actually just cited from on sin, uh, one of the students, they they, they said mm-hmm. something that, that I will not forget. They said this. They said, when we understand the sinfulness of our sin, it causes us to be reminded of how wretched we truly are. So when we think of sinning, he said, we are repulsed by the thought of something that required the death of the Son of God to redeem us. I, I just I thought, wow, he, he gets it. He absolutely gets mm-hmm. it. And so I wholeheartedly mm-hmm. agree, mm-hmm. not only with mm-hmm. the student, but with what, what Rouse had written in that first chapter. Uh, and as, articul- as, as articulate as that student was, uh, they really expressed the truth, the truth that, that perhaps has not yet rested on the mind of the, of the person who's embracing perfectionism. And that truth is that their sin required the death of Christ, the death of of Christ, uh, mm-hmm. not of, not of their own works, but the death mm-hmm. of Christ. In any regard, I think it's essential to begin mm-hmm. opening the episode as you did, Daryl, with focusing on the sinfulness of sin. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I think it needs to be said, Omaha, in light of what you just said, that perfectionism is both a very enslaving and a very destructive sin. Mm. Perfectionism is both enslaving and destructive. In fact, the sin of perfectionism is so destructive that it not only adversely impacts and affects the perfectionist, but also everyone around him or her. I like to compare the impact made by perfectionists to the epicenter of an earthquake. By definition, an epicenter is regarded as the focal point of something, typically a difficult or unpleasant situation. Uh, Notice that people rarely, if ever, Omaha, use the word epicenter in a positive light. Mm -hmm. It's almost always used in a negative context. As I said earlier, the epicenter of an earthquake is considered to be its focal point. Perfectionism is a lot like the epicenter of an earthquake in that in the same way that the epicenter is the focal point of an earthquake, the behavioral vibrations of the perfectionist extend outward from himself or herself to everyone and everything that is within range of him or her. Consequently, Every person who is unfortunate enough to find themselves within range of a perfectionist experiences damage to one extent or another. Some experience more damage than others, but no one who is regularly within range of the epicenter of the perfectionist goes unscathed. No one. Mm. I want to repeat that. No one who is regularly within range of the epicenter of the perfectionist goes unscathed. Mm -hmm. Now, I want our listeners to know, Omaha, that though this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast may not necessarily engender images of rainbows, lollipops, and unicorns, <laughs> or feelings of bliss and, and ecstasy as they listen, mm-hmm. at least not at the very outset of this episode anyway, our sincere hope is that this episode will provide them with the hope that in Jesus Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit, they can have victory in this area of their life. Now, I say that in the spirit of this encouraging benediction from the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, verse 13. And I'm be reading, of course, from the non-Armenian Standard Bible Translation. <laughs> Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, that was Romans 15, 13. 
Those words from the Apostle Paul are germane to our discussion about perfectionism, Omaha, because generally speaking, joy, peace, and hope are essentially what the perfectionist fundamentally lacks in his or her life, but is nonetheless what they are incessantly trying to find by means of their own efforts, rules, expectations, and standards that they place on themselves and on others. But notice what Paul said in Romans 15, 13. He said, with all joy and peace in believing. So the question I have today for the perfectionist who professes to be a Christian is this. What or who are you choosing to believe? What or who are you choosing to believe? Now, I ask that question because the very behavior that the perfectionist displays and exhibits testifies to the fact that he or she has chosen, perhaps over the course of many years, to believe something or someone, and that what they've chosen to believe is obviously not what they should be believing. Whatever their motivations may be for exhibiting the perfectionist behaviors that they do, whether it's to please other people or to please themselves, whatever please means to them, the perfectionist in those moments has chosen to believe something other than the truth of God's word. Uh-huh. What the perfectionist doesn't realize is that what they are seeking for, what they're searching for, not in their own power, but only in Christ. Now, I say that in light of what Jesus himself said in John fifteen five, that apart from me, you can do nothing. And that word nothing, my friend, means precisely that, nothing. So though it may sound like tough love here at the beginning of this episode, and it is, our sincere prayer and desire is that as God gives us wisdom, Omaha, that this episode will encourage and build up those listeners who may be enslaved to this merciless pattern of behavior. But the first step in providing that encouragement and help to you who may fall into that category is to speak the truth. That's Ephesians 4.15a. That's the first part of that verse. So that you grow up in all respects into him who is the head, even Christ. That's the second part of that verse. That's Ephesians 14b. We often quote Ephesians 14a verse, speak the truth in love. But we never cite the second half of that verse. Well, why do we speak the truth in love? We speak the truth in Lord towards the goal of building one another up so that they grow up, so that we mature. So in other words, we speak the truth in love towards the goal of spiritual maturity. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. That is what we're attempting to do in this episode of the Justing In Podcast, Omaha. We are attempting to encourage one another and to build up one another toward the goal of spiritual maturity. Yeah, that was a great section as well, just kind of unpacking the important. I, I, I love the fact that you took, that you took Ephesians 4.15 apart uh, because we often hear that first section quoted uh, apart from the idea of its purpose. Uh, that, the, mm-hmm. that the reason for the truth and love is for the purpose of spiritual maturity. I think that's incredibly important. Well, Darrell, you and I have shared our involvement with biblical counseling to varying degrees with our audience. Um, unlike any other type of counseling, biblical counseling, biblical counseling begins with the sufficiency of God's word and examining every matter of life mm-hmm. and godliness. And one of the things that result 
from biblical counseling is that the word of God is first a mirror. It's a mirror examining the heart Mm -hmm. of those who investigate it. And scripture is clear about this. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, uh, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, so the, the word of God is is absolutely sufficient in this area as well. Um, a, a warning, again, for any person. This is a warning for any person desiring to read scripture. Here's my warning. You don't just read scripture. Scripture actually reads you. That's how this works. Man, so, come on, bro. Yes, so, sir. So in preparation for this episode, our study uh, in this particular subject, man, forced me to examine my own heart about the subject of perfectionism. Uh, And it was essential to see not if, but how this idol of perfection presents itself in my own life. Now, while Mm -hmm. I'd like to believe that perfectionism Mm -hmm. is an area that is conquered in my life, at least from the standpoint of the idea of of salvific uh, works of, you know, works-based righteousness, right? I I recognize that that's not Mm -hmm. the standard. Uh, I had to recognize where it does exist so that it can be conquered in that area as well. Now, the first thing I realized about this particular sin is that it's difficult oftentimes for you to be able to see this particular sin on your own. Uh, for the most part, you'll justify it in some way. Well, I'm just hardworking. Well, I'm just a type A personality. Well, I just like to accomplish things and get a lot of things done. And so that that feeds your pride. And so you actually ignore the motivations behind why you do what you do. I, I would suggest that in this particular area, you may need the help of others who care about you in order to examine your heart more fully. Furthermore, you'll need to ask the Holy Spirit of God to reveal it to you as you continue to reflect upon the Word of God. Now, finally, while many believe that this sin is focused on a particular gender, say women rather than men, you'd absolutely be wrong about this. The sin of perfectionism does not discriminate. Men and women can tend to fall into either one of two ditches. I've been actually guilty of both. On the, on the one end, we're striving toward a goal and, and our insecurity and our ability to be perfect sometimes ends up causing procrastination. So let me explain that again. As we're striving toward a goal, right? We're trying to accomplish something. Mm-hmm. We're actually mm-hmm. insecure about our, our ability to actually be perfect in that strive or, or perfect in obtaining that goal. So what happens? We'll often procrastinate, not get things done and, and look like, you know, make excuses for why we're not moving forward. And this is followed by a sense of being overwhelmed uh, and a deliberate avoidance as the stress continues to compound. That's an area, as, as slight as it may be, where perfectionism is causing you to pause. The other appears to be when we do something well. So on the one hand, you have striving toward a goal and you're not really sure if you can accomplish it. And on the other end, it's, you know, you recognize that you're not able to do something well. Man, I fall into this category more times than not. Uh, It's reflected in a critical attitude toward others who want to accomplish the same task, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. when, when, When you're not able to accomplish something rather than recognizing, well, someone else can do it or do it better, you're critical of how they're doing it because mm-hmm. if you were to do it, 
you wouldn't accomplish it in that same way. You wouldn't do it the way they're doing it. You think you would mm-hmm. do it differently. And so you're critical and it brings up a, a real critique in your mind when that's the case. Now, while I mentioned these two ditches, this is really more self-reflection. And so these are not the only two ditches that are out there. And I know as we progress through the podcast, we're going to uncover, unpack a number of different things for people to, to, to utilize tools, ideas, concepts, scripture that people will be able to utilize as they examine their own hearts. But again, these are simply two ditches that I find myself most prone to uh, regarding this issue. And in this episode, again, we're going to continue to plow the ground of our hearts and we're going to do so using the word of God. And the challenge will be to consider what's shared here and then apply it to our own walk with God. That's what I have for that section, brother. You know, V, I love how you uh, pictured that for us with the imagery of two ditches. Yeah. I like that. I like that. I like that imagery. And what I would encourage listeners to do, especially listeners who might consider themselves as perfectionists, is to go back, get on your computer or get a piece of uh, a legal pad or and a pen and, uh, and, and then write down how your perfectionism manifests those two ditches. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and 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 then as you as you lay that out for yourself, uh, go back and search scripture and verses to what you wrote down mm-hmm. uh, as far as how your perfectionism manifests itself in one or both of those two ditches. I really love that picture mm-hmm. of our two ditches. Uh, so I think what you've done, perhaps unbeknownst to you, you've given our listeners, as you alluded to earlier, this, this episode is actually a biblical counseling session. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to talk about that a little more later, but what you've actually done is given our listeners their first homework assignment, mm. uh, 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 go back and, and, and man, just draw a T just draw a T uh, a T chart, uh, ditch one, ditch two, mm-hmm. and then write down and go, go back and listen to first, how Virgil has described those two ditches, go back and re-listen to that. And then uh, write down how your own perfectionist tendencies right. manifest themselves in either one or both of those two ditches. So, so that was very good, Virg. Very yeah, good. Then, yeah. then go back and apply scripture to what you wrote down. And then ask the Lord in prayer to help you mortify uh, those manifestations in your life. Very that, good. V. I appreciate I, it. Thanks, man. I want to add one more thing to, to this particular thing. When, when you told me that we were going to do this particular subject, this was, this was hard and I got your notes and walked through it. And it was difficult. I think for me, as I, as I reflected, like, I, this is, this isn't my problem. I don't have to worry about this. I, I don't, I, mm-hmm. how, you know, how, how am I going to, how am I going to tackle this subject when issues of culture that are outside of us, man, that's fun stuff to talk about. You know, we can we can talk yeah. about critical race theory. We can talk about, you know, the, the folks that are out there. And so long as it doesn't have doesn't require any self-examination of our hearts, it's easy. Right. So mm-hmm. this one challenge challenged me. I'm hopeful that it will challenge our listeners to do some self-reflection. And this is why this is this is probably one of one of our more sober uh, uh, episodes in, in, in light of the others that we've done like this, folks who are dealing with issues of assurance of salvation, uh, the, the, the podcast that we did on the issue of pornography, uh, other podcasts that we do on subject matter that really force the, the listener now to sit, not look at the enemy out there, but mm-hmm. to look at the enemy that, that resides in their own heart, the sinfulness of their own 
heart and and examine it for what it is. So for for me again, this was this was much this was incredibly beneficial. And I'm hoping uh, that as this continues to play out for the listener, they'll find uh, they'll find that that to be true for them as well. Yeah, let me just add one more thing before I dive back into my commentary. I think just listening to you there, Omaha, I think what the listeners are going to find um, as, as they listen to this episode in its entirety, I think they're going to find that it's not just about perfectionism. Uh-huh. You're giving stuff away, man. Find, you, You're giving stuff I away. I want to give too much away. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think they're going to find, uh, but, but to your earlier comment, and I've often said that the, the word of God is first a mirror, then a window. Yeah, It's first a mirror to see yourself, then it's a window to look out and see everything else. Mm-hmm. And you kind of alluded to that earlier. So I think what we're going to find is as folks listen to this episode and they hold that mirror up to themselves, they're going to see themselves. Mm-hmm. They're going to see themselves in areas where they may not have thought they might see themselves as they listen to this episode. So I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, we won't give away too much because we got a, got a lot to get through yet. But, you know, one of the many challenges that you and I faced Omaha in preparing for this episode on a biblical response to perfectionism is landing on an objective definition of what perfectionism actually is an objective definition of what perfectionism actually is. That's where I believe we have to start. I think we've gained somewhat of a reputation on the just thinking podcast of being able to take our time and define our terms. And, And it's no different than with this episode here, with this topic that we're dealing with today, we have to start with defining what perfectionism is. And to be honest, Omaha, I don't know that it's possible for us to find just one definition of perfectionism that will be agreed upon by everyone, not even by most perfectionists. Now, that said, in preparing for this episode, I was able to come across one definition that I believe to be a good and succinct starting point for our discussion about perfectionism. That definition is is contained in an article titled The Sin of Perfectionism, written by Dr. Stanley D. Gale, G-A-L-E, Dr. Stanley D. Gale. Dr. Gale is Senior Minister of Reformed Presbyterian Church in West Chester, Pennsylvania, and is founder of an outreach ministry called Community Houses of Prayer. In that article, in the aforementioned article, The Sin of Perfectionism, Dr. Gale defines perfectionism as follows, quote, perfectionism can be described as an allegiance to and occupation with becoming perfect, unquote. Again, very short, very succinct definition by Dr. Stanley Gale. Perfectionism can be described as an allegiance to and an occupation with becoming perfect. Now, I want to park on that definition for a moment, Omaha, because I think Dr. Gale in giving us that definition, has touched on something that is often overlooked when it comes to perfectionism, namely that perfectionists have an occupation with becoming perfect. Mm -hmm. Now, most of us would concur with that, I believe, that being perfect is somewhat of an occupation for the perfectionist, but rarely is the perfectionist regarded as someone who has an allegiance to becoming perfect. That is a point which I believe warrants our additional consideration. So let's do that. According to the Cambridge English Dictionary, allegiance is defined as loyalty to and support for a ruler, country, group, or belief. A loyalty to and support for a ruler, country, group, or 
belief. The reason that definition is germane to our discussion about perfectionism, Omaha, is that the perfectionist's occupation with becoming perfect is born from an allegiance and loyalty to the belief that they and others must be perfect. It's important that we understand that because, you see, it's our nature as sinful human beings to serve and to please whatever or whomever it is that we happen to have an allegiance or loyalty to. That's why we need to expand on the aspect of life of the perfectionist. You see, it was Jesus himself who said, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. That's Matthew 6, 21. And in the context of those words from Jesus, I believe it can be rightly argued, Omaha, that the perfectionist is fundamentally a treasure hunter. The perfectionist fundamentally is a treasure hunter. You see, allegiance to anything or to anyone is always a heart issue. That's what takes us back to Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there is your heart also. That reality, that reality, reality that allegiance is always a heart issue. That reality is what makes perfectionism fundamentally a spiritual problem. And conversely, is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only solution to that problem. A problem which the Bible refers to, and you alluded to this earlier, Omaha, the Bible refers to this issue as idolatry. Idolatry always begins with self. Always. And the genesis of perfectionism is self in one degree or another, in one respect or another. The genesis of all perfectionism is self. Now, to understand that point, I want to quote from an excellent book written by Dr. Tim Chester titled, You Can Change, subtitled, God's Transforming Power for Our Sinful Behaviors and Negative Emotions. Again, this is a book by Dr. Tim Chester titled, You Can Change, God's Transforming Power for Our Sinful Behaviors and Negative Mr. Chester writes this quote, Sinful behaviors and negative emotions arise when we believe lies about God instead of trusting God's word. We sin because we desire or worship idols instead of worshiping God. We don't often think of ourselves as worshiping idols because we think of idols in terms of statues and shrines. But an idol is anything we look to instead of God for living water. Let me pause right there. Did you, did, is, is that settling in with you, listener? An idol is anything we look to living water. I love how Dr. Chester put that. C- continuing to quote from Dr. Tim Chester from his book, You Can Change. Our double sin is, first, rejecting the truth of God's greatness and goodness, and second, placing our affections elsewhere. We serve whatever our hearts desire most. Are y'all listening? I mean, this is heavy. This Mm -hmm. is some heat that Dr. Chester is dropping here. We serve whatever our hearts desire most. Remember, we're talking about allegiance and loyalty and occupation with. If that desire is for God and his glory, Dr. Chester writes, then God is our master. But if our desire is, for example, for money, then money is our master, and that's idolatry. We're not sinners because we commit sinful acts. We commit sinful acts because we're sinners, born with a bias to sin. 
enslaved by our own sinful desires. Every sin begins in the heart with a sinful desire. Sin arises because we exchange the truth about God for a lie. Our double problem is that we believe lies rather than believing God and worship idols rather than worshiping God. Dr. Chester closes with this. Now I want our listeners to put your ear really close to the speaker if you're driving in your car, if you're listening on your Apple uh, earbuds, pin them in a little bit tighter because you're going to hear this. Dr. Chester closes this passage with this. He says, desire is at the helm of our lives. It determines our behavior. We always do what we want to do. Unquote. We always do what we want to do. We're talking about allegiance and loyalty to Dr. Chester nailed it. I encourage you to get a copy of that book. You can change by Dr. Tim Chester. He says, desire is at the helm of our lives. It determines our behavior. We always do what we want to do. Now, Speaking of Allegiance Omaha, think back to when you were in grade school and you began the day by doing what? Reciting the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag, right? Now, before you said a single word of that pledge, what was the first thing you were required to do? You were required to place your right hand over your heart. The allegiance that the perfectionist has to being perfect and to expecting others to be perfect as well is a sinful and unhealthy sense of allegiance and loyalty that has been formed in the heart of that person. And as we know from Scripture, it is in our heart that who we truly are resides. I mean, we see that in Scripture such as Proverbs 23.7, which in the non-American Standard Translation reads, the New American Standard Translation reads this, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. Again, that's Proverbs 23.7. And then again in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus declares that it is what proceeds from within us, from from inside our heart that defiles us. And in citing those two passages from Proverbs 23 and Mark 7, Omaha, I'm reminded of these words from the Puritan theologian and author John Flavel, who in his book titled Keeping the Heart said this, quote, Above all other studies in the world, study your own hearts. Waste not a minute more of your precious time about frivolous and sapless controversies. Leave trifling studies to such as have time lying on their hands and know not how to employ it. Remember, you are at the door of eternity and have other work to do. Those hours you spend upon heart work in your closets are the golden spots of all your time and will have the sweetest influence upon your last hour. Heart work is weighty and difficult work, and error there may cost you your soul. Oh, then, study your own hearts, unquote. That was John Flavel from his book, Keeping the Heart. And in light of that, I have to ask our listeners, Omaha, I want to ask you, dear listener, are you studying your own heart? I mean, be honest. Are you studying your own heart, as Flavel said, above all other studies in the world? You see, you, you mentioned this a, a few minutes ago, uh, Verge, but you and I are both biblical counselors. Now, I reiterate that for two reasons. Number one, as you said, uh, Verge, 
We believe scripture is sufficient to address every spiritual issue a believer in Christ might encounter in this life. Mm-hmm. As uh, the late Dr. J. E. Adams writes in his book, The Christian Counselor's Manual, quote, just as the Christian counselor knows that there is no unique problem that has not been mentioned plainly in the scriptures, so also he knows that there is a biblical solution to every problem. He knows, too, that Jesus was tested, quote, in all points as we are, unquote, and that he successfully met every test, quote, without sin, unquote. Since Jesus has faced and solved all of life's basic problems, the counselor knows that in his work and words as recorded in the scriptures, he may discover the needed solutions. Indeed, the scriptures say that God has revealed to his church all things pertaining to life and godliness, and that God has given his word in written form in order to enable his people to engage in all good works by thoroughly equipping them for every exigency of life, unquote. That was the late Dr. J.E. Adams from his book, The Christian Counselor's Manual. So that's reason number one. God has given us his word in order to, as Dr. Adams said, enable his people to engage in all good works by thoroughly equipping them for every exigency of life. Now, reason number two, that we believe scripture is sufficient in addressing the issue of perfectionism is that perfectionism is, as I said earlier, fundamentally a spiritual issue. Consequently, we believe the word of God, as it is made effectual in the human heart by the spirit of God, is the only true solution to the problem of perfectionism. Now, I say that against the backdrop of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. That's 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. Paul said that the word of God the gospel performs its work in the hearts of those who believe it, which begs this question. Do you truly believe the word of God? Do you truly perfectionist? Do you truly believe the word of God? Now that's a simple yes or no question. That's a simple yes or no question that you have to answer. You see Omaha, the truth is, that every professing believer in Jesus Christ, not only believers who consider themselves perfectionists, needs to be reminded that the gospel is literally the power of God. That's Romans 1.16. The gospel is not merely words on a page that appear in a book we call the Bible. The gospel is the word of Almighty God himself, and it is that same Almighty God who invigorates his word by his spirit so as to make his word active and effectual in our hearts by faith. So again, the only question that remains to be asked of the perfectionist who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ is this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the gospel is powerful enough to work in you? Some scriptures you can go back to study further on this is John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Hebrews eleven six. And James chapter one, verses six through eight. What you got, Omaha? 
Well, I, I love what you shared. Biggest thing that I had to do, this was the first time I've ever had to do this. Uh, when you were quoting from J.E. Adams, I had to go look up exigency. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to I, I had to go look. I mean, I, I it's could, a powerful I, word. It is. I had to go look. I, I mean, I, I could guess what that word was, but I looked it up. It means an urgent need or demand. So it, so as, as you were, were, were quoting from him, it's the, the idea that the word of God actually thor- thoroughly equips men for every urgent need or demand that life has to offer. And so that's kind of what uh, what he was, was sharing there. I want to go back up to something you said much earlier uh, in, in, in your thoughts when you were giving a definition, kind of defining for the listener uh, the the uh, the term perfectionism and, and how we were going to kind of uh, unpack it. As you were explaining this great dilemma and coming up with an objective definition, which at least all perfectionists, uh, those who are, are are adhering to perfectionism would all agree. I thought the same might be true as, as we looked in the scripture. So as you were trying to define the word objectively, just from a, a, hey, how are we using the word in this context? What are we doing? I started thinking, how how would scripture define this? You and I always and often go back to the pages of scripture for, for, for definition uh, and, and to make sure that we're using biblical terminology. And so I, I, I immediately, as you were unpacking that definition, I had two particular ex- examples, excuse me, that jumped into mind with regard to the issue of perfectionism. And the first one is easily recognizable. You'd, you'd recognize it uh, in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. I'll read this account from Mark chapter 10 from the elect standard version of the Bible. So (laughs) let me unpack that. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and following read this way. Uh, And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I'm tempted to stop there and exegete that, but I'm going to keep moving for the sake of of, of time. It says this in verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. Now, doesn't that sound like a good perfectionist? All of these things. It does, bro. It does. I have kept from my youth. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and and come and follow me. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 23, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to him again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but with God, but but not with God. I'm reading from the elect standard again. For all things are possible with God. There's so much there. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in the response, 
of the disciples who were wanting to lean into some performance-based uh, idea about salvation. Okay. Now, the second example, I'm going to give you both examples. The second example of perfectionism is more implicit than explicit. This can be found in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 17 through 20, he's, it, it reads this way. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's unpack this really quickly. Uh, Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus establishes actually the significance of the law. He doesn't minimize it or diminish its importance. The law is perfect in every way. In verse 19, Jesus addresses the first ditch. Remember when I mentioned those two ditches? Jesus actually, yep. mentions, Jesus actually mentions the first ditch uh, that I mentioned earlier, the idea of, of folks who would minimize sin in order to justify it. Right? This is the idea that one needs to minimize their sin or, or explain it away in an effort to have the appearance of perfection. It, again, verse 19 reads this way. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and then teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches them uh, and does them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the message is clear. One cannot obtain perfection by minimizing their sin or by ignoring it or by or by looking the other way or teaching others to do likewise. Furthermore, Absolute obedience of the law must be observed to, to obtain or receive the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 20, Jesus mm -hmm. lays the sledgehammer to perfectionism when he says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't, need to, I don't need to tell this audience that the scribes and Pharisees were believed to be the most religious, the most righteous, those who were operating in the utmost of perfection in Jewish society. Those would be the, the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the keepers and protectors of the law. Now, if anyone had achieved perfection and inherited eternal life through the observation of the law, the scribes and Pharisees would have definitely accomplished that. But but Jesus absolutely destroys that notion in his statement when he's when he like with with laser like precision uh, lays the claim that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not receive the kingdom of heaven. This is this is a, a clear a, a, both both examples are examples of those when I when I go back to to Mark chapter ten, uh, those who are are seeking perfectionism. This is what it looks like in Scripture. Right. You, you, you defined it for us, gave us an objective, succinct point of view. I wanted to go back to scripture, as we all often do, and, and unpack these in two examples. In both of these examples, the word perfectionism is not there. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. idea of what's happening in the life of those in, in, the, in the lives of the examples that we provided is there. You had mm -hmm. in the first example, you had the, uh, the, the rich young ruler who mm -hmm. knew that he had operated in perfection by keeping and observing the law. Uh, and, and, and Jesus is going to expose the fact that even as you think you're keeping the law with perfection, uh, he's going to amplify that law. That is, that is absolutely merited out. 
uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where he continues on further with the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, as you've heard it said, uh, uh, you have heard that it was said uh, to those of old, you should not murder. Whoever murders will be liable of judgment. Verse 22, but I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 27 and 28, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart has already committed adultery in his heart. Last, last example, Matthew 6, 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What you have in both of these examples is the idea that's in the mind of, of the person we met, the rich young ruler, those who are the scribes and Pharisees. They're thinking, I've operated in this perfectionism. I, I've, I've made it. I've checked the box. And what Jesus says is, no, the law was intent to be, to, we, and we talked about it during this episode, the law is supposed to be a mirror that mm-hmm. reflects to you the fact that you cannot obtain perfection. Uh, there's no way for you to do it. And as a result, you're going to need the one who is perfect. And that is Jesus Christ for it's only he who is able to save. It is only he who is indeed perfect. I just wanted to take a moment and and open the pages of scriptures while I know, uh, the word perfectionism or perfectionist is not in those two examples. I wanted to appeal to a couple of examples based upon scripture that will help the listener attach the idea in a biblical context altogether. That's what I've got for this section. You know, V, um, um, let me just say this as a, as a personal note. I think uh, uh, um, I don't want our listeners to ever think that when you and I get behind these microphones that, you know, it's all sort of rigid and scripted and choreographed. No, no, no. I mean, obviously, we put a lot of work in to prepare for these episodes, a lot of work. Mm-hmm. However, when we hit record, you listen to me and I listen to you. Right. Absolutely. What, Absolutely. What, what, you, what you just did, what you, as I'm listening to you there and I'm thinking, excellent point. No, you don't see the word perfectionist there. You don't see perfectionism right. there. Right. But, but the principles, the, 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 the examples, as you said, Mm-hmm. are there. Yes. And uh, I like what you said about how Jesus exhausts the law. See, what happened with the rich young ruler and the, fire, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees as well is the same thing the perfectionist does. The perfectionist always exalts the self. Yes, yes. But when the, when the perfectionist is confronted with Jesus, Jesus always exalts the law. Yes. So that the perfectionist is always having to climb one rung higher. That's and good. One rung higher and yes. one rung higher. See, that's the same thing the, the rich young ruler did. The same thing that the scribes and the Pharisees did. They exalted the law. They exalted, I'm sorry, they exalted the self. They exalted the self and what they thought had, they had accomplished. See, but, but when, when you're face to face with Jesus, you realize how, how short you fall mm-hmm. in what you thought you had accomplished. So when mm-hmm. you're, while you're exalting the self, self, Jesus is raising the standard even higher. Yes. So, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but that's what I appreciate most about what you did. That that was the bell. That was the aha moment mm-hmm. for me and what you just took us through. So thanks Good. for that. Good. Absolutely. Um, you know, to help guide our discussion on this matter of perfectionism, Omaha, and how to respond biblically to it, I'm going to be leveraging heavily an article titled Counseling the Perfectionist. This is an excellent article 
It's titled Counseling the Perfectionist. It was written by Miss Cody Newcomb. First name is C-O-D-Y. Last name N-E-W-C-O-M-E. Miss Newcomb is a certified biblical counselor with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And in the aforementioned article, again titled Counseling the Perfectionist, Miss Newcomb writes this, quote, please listen closely. Perfectionism can take on many different forms, often disguising itself as a high achieving and put together person. At first glance, the person may have the kind of life that many would want to emulate and congratulate. Imagine a well-manicured and fit woman whose house is beautiful and clean. She bakes from scratch. Her children are polite, and she always shows up to Bible study with her lessons completed. From all outward appearances, things seem to be in order and well attended to in this woman's life. Those around her lift her up and praise her accomplishments, fueling the approval from others and herself that she so desperately craves. What is not always obvious when looking at the perfectionist's life from the outside is what is actually going on in the soul of this person. Mm -hmm. I like to ask my counselees who struggle in this area, what kind of fruit is being produced in their lives as a result of these standards they have placed upon themselves? Many times they give me the same answer, expressing that they are exhausted and worn down from the constant and self-inflicted expectations of perfection. They tell me that their inward life is marked by fruitless anxiety, fear, shame, and discontentment. Now, let me pause right here in this quote from Ms. Newcomb. Discontentment is a huge byproduct of perfectionism. Not only for the perfectionists, where they're never satisfied with themselves, that discontentment, again, is that epicenter effect. It flows out to everyone who is within range of them. That's good. So they're That's not good. just discontent with themselves. They're discontent with everyone else. Ms. Newsom nails it here. I'm going to go back and read and, and start a little further back and then, then finish with the quote. But I thought that was incredibly important for her to mention. She says, many times the perfectionist gives me the same answer, expressing that they are exhausted and worn down from the constant and self-inflicted expectations of perfection. They tell me that their inward life is marked by fruitless anxiety, fear, shame, and discontentment. They long for the peace and joy that their perfectionistic quest cannot deliver. What a joy and privilege it is to be able to bring truth to bear on the perfectionist's life and to offer them hope through the truth of the gospel. Scripture has much to say about this particular sin and gives us a way to gain freedom from it as we learn more of who we are because of Jesus Christ, unquote. Now, we're going to go back to this article later on, uh, Omaha, but again, that article is by Ms. Cody Newcomb, titled Counseling the Perfectionist. You can find that article on the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors website at biblicalcounseling.com. Now, Ms. Newcomb's comments leave us with much to consider here, Omaha, and I'd like to begin with something she said toward the end of the quote that I just read. Ms. Newcomb said, Scripture has much to say about this particular sin. Now, we've touched on this already, but in discussing the topic of, of a biblical response to perfectionism, that is where we must begin. We must begin with acknowledging that perfectionism is sin. 
It's often difficult to get the perfectionist to realize that their behavior isn't merely a, quote, bad habit, unquote, that needs to be changed or that they need to do better at, but that is that is actually that needs to be confessed and repented of so that genuine sanctification can occur. The 17th century Puritan Joseph Carrill, who lived from 1602 to 1673, in a sermon he preached in the year 1645 titled Confession of Sin, said this, quote, The holiest man on earth has cause to confess that he has sinned. Confession is the duty of the best Christians. While the ship leaks, the pump must not stand still. Confession is a soul-humbling duty. Did you hear that, listener? Confession is a soul-humbling duty, and the best have need of that, for they are in most danger of being lifted up in pride. To preserve us from self-exaltations, the Lord sometimes sends the messenger of Satan to buffet us by temptations and commands us to buffet ourselves by confessions. Confession affects the heart with sin and engages the heart against it. Every confession of the evil we do is a new obligation not to do it anymore. Confession of sin shows us more clearly our need of mercy and endears God's mercy more to us. How good and sweet is mercy to a soul that has tasted how evil and bitter a thing it is to sin against the Lord. Confession of sin advances Christ in our hearts. How does it declare the riches of Christ when we are not afraid to tell him what infinite sums of debt we are in, which he only and he easily can discharge? How it does commend the healing virtue of his blood when we open to him such mortal wounds and sicknesses, which he only and he easily can cure. Woe be to those who commit sin aboundingly that grace may abound but it is our duty to confess sin aboundingly that grace may abound, unquote. Again, that was the Puritan Joseph Carroll from his uh, sermon titled Confessions of Sin from 1645. Now, Carroll mentioned grace in that quote that I just read. And speaking of grace, I want our listeners to consider what the late Dr. Jerry Bridges says in his book titled The Discipline of Grace, subtitled, God's role and our role in the pursuit of holiness. Again, this is Dr. Jerry Bridges from his book, The Discipline of Grace, God's Role and Our Role in the Pursuit of Holiness. Quote, the Holy Spirit's work in transforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ is called sanctification. Our involvement and cooperation with him in his work is what I call the pursuit of holiness. The pursuit of holiness requires sustained and vigorous effort. It allows for no indolence, no lethargy, no half-hearted commitment, and no laissez-faire attitude toward even the smallest sins. In short, it demands the highest priority in the life of a Christian because to be holy is to be like Christ. God's goal for every Christian is the pursuit of holiness, and the pursuit of holiness must be anchored in the grace of God. Otherwise, it is doomed to failure, unquote. It was a 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who in his sermon titled Going and Weeping, which he preached on November 9th, 1871, said this, quote, when I, 
When I meet with a brother who tells me that he is nearly perfect, I know that he is living in the dark. For if he lived in the light, he would see how far short he came of the glory of God, mm-hmm. unquote. And that was the case, Omaha, with the rich young ruler. Absolutely. He thought he lived in the light, but in reality, he lived in the dark. Mm-hmm. What you got, man? Now, this was a solid section. Again, I love quotes from Spurgeon. They always just hit the mark. He's so succinct uh, in his delivery uh, of truth that, so that it, it ends up being a, a gut punch or a lightning bolt to the soul, if you will, as, as, you, as you hear him unpack different issues that, that pertain to us, uh, uh, even, in, even in, in, in our day. But as you mentioned, the, the disconnection for the perfectionist, uh, you, you talked about how the, their disconnect is, that, is seeing their sin as sin uh, rather than simply as a bad habit, right? Um, as, mm-hmm. I, as, right. as I think about this, man, I'm reminded of Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter eight begins with a familiar opening verse to most who who read it. It says there, uh, Romans chapter eight, verse one says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Uh, this is important because we first, if, if we don't see, if the perfectionist doesn't see their sin as sin, well, what happens? Well, they end up holding on to the, the guilt and the weight, weightiness of all of that. But if, they, but if they see their sin as the sin that it is, they can be freed from the weight of that sin, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, I think about this particular verse of scripture. What a help it would be for, a perfect, for, for someone who's, who's, uh, who's holding on to the idol of perfectionism to simply abandon the idol and grasp and lay hold to Jesus, because there's the there's the release in the repentance in in the section you you talked about you you went and and I can't remember the exact quote, uh, but you were talking about how it is to the benefit. You were saying something along the lines of how it's to the benefit of uh, of the believer uh, that that repentance uh, is is something that that's of benefit to the believer. That's something that we should engage in on a mm-hmm. consistent and regular mm-hmm. basis because that's that's a that's help that's help to our our very soul. Well, this is the result of of. What happens when you repent? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Uh, I, I love that section of Scripture. The Scripture goes on further to say this, verse 3, for what God has done, uh, for God has done, rather, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, that verse does not mean that the law was was imperfect. Uh, what it means is that those of us who tried to accomplish or obtain eternal life uh, through the through the obedience of the law, uh, the law was was weak to help us do that. One, we failed, and two, there was act, there was actually no power in the law to help us or to make us obey it. Uh, that power would only come through the power of the Spirit of God, not by the arm of the flesh. And again, that that whole that whole that verse right there alone is another appeal to the perfectionist to abandon uh your flesh and embrace the spirit of God who has the power to help you overcome those things which we fall mm-hmm. prey to. Verse 4, in order that we do this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You want to be perfect? Abandon perfection. <laughs> right? Oh uh, man, come on, V. You want to be perfect, abandon perfection and, uh, and and embrace the one who is indeed perfect, Christ himself and him crucified. Uh, 
Uh, the scripture is is telling us that's the that's the way in which we obtain that which we are seeking by understanding our weakness, our inability to accomplish what the law requires. Again, for, verse four reminds us that that righteousness or perfection, the righteousness or perfection that we seek, is not of our own doing; it is a work of the Spirit. Verse five: For those who live according to the flesh. So here here's the here's the warning for the. Mm-hmm. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who are living according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Let me stop here and say this. Oftentimes when we read that section of Scripture, when we read that section of Scripture, we automatically attach. When we see flesh, we may, we, we may have a natural knee-jerk reaction to attach that idea to something sexual. Right. To, right. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I'm 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 not gonna I'm not gonna be enslaved to sexual sin. So I, I I therefore I'm not putting my mind on the things of the flesh. And all that means simply is that when when we're living according to the flesh, we're living according to our own power, our own ability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Great point. Uh, and, th- and that's what we need to we need to consider. But we set our mind on things of the spirit. Verse six: For to set the mind on the flesh is death. That, that, that should that should end it. Mm. But to set the mind on the spirit mm-hmm. is life and peace. It, verse seven, again, this verse seven is a sledgehammer to the perfectionist. It reads this way. It reads this way. Verse seven says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot Please God. Now, let me say here, just in case, you know, those who, who who are listening, you 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 said at the outset that we're not dealing with with you know the the issue of 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 sinless perfectionism or anything like that, any kind of theological matter regarding that issue. And what this is not is this is not an appeal to antinomianism. Antinomianism. Right. right. Uh, Anti means against. Nomos means the law. This isn't an this isn't an appeal to being against the law. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna be against the law, so I can I can abandon any kind of uh, any kind of requirements of the law. I can I can I can live out any way I want to live, and God's gonna accept me no matter what. Uh, that's not that's not the appeal here. Uh, this is rather an appeal to obey the law out of a love for Christ, rather than from a sense of self righteousness, which a we cannot earn. And B, we have no ability to obtain, and so that's kind of what yeah. I wanted to wanted to share with regard to that. That's what I got. Right yeah, I, I love your point about this not being appealed to uh, uh, antinomianism. This is not that, right? Um, um, it's 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 a Luke six forty six where Jesus says, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not yes, do what I say?" Yes, yes, it's, yes. It's it's the, it's the exact opposite. So I appreciate you pointing that out. That was very important, actually, Omaha, to, to sort of uh, uh, make that make that point. Um, I want to take a moment, uh, Omaha, just to quote an excerpt from a BBC article dated February 20th, 2018, titled The Dangerous Downsides of Perfectionism. This article was written by Amanda Ruggieri. Uh, Amanda Ruggieri is actually a senior journalist with the BBC. And in that article, again, titled The Dangerous Downsides of perfectionism, uh, Amanda Ruggieri says this, quote, if I've struggled with perfectionism, I'm far from alone. The tendency starts young, common. The rise in perfectionism doesn't mean each generation is becoming more accomplished. It means we're getting sicker, sadder, and even undermining our own potential. Mm -hmm. Perfectionism is an ultimately self-defeating way to move through the world. It is, a, it is built on an excruciating irony. 
Making and admitting mistakes is a necessary part of growing and learning and being human. It also makes you better at your career and relationships and life in general. By avoiding mistakes at any cost, a perfectionist can make it harder to reach their own lofty goals. Unquote. That was Amanda Ruggieri from an article titled The Dangerous Downsides of Perfectionism. Now, in that same article, Amanda Ruggieri cites a 2017 white paper published by the American Psychological Association, or APA, titled Perfectionism is Increasing Over Time, subtitled A Meta-Analysis of Birth Cohort Differences from 1989 to 2016. The white paper was co-authored by Thomas Curran of the University of Bath and Andrew P. Hill of York St. John University. And in that white paper, Andrew P. Hill said something that I thought was very profound. He said this, quote, There has been some suggestions that in some cases, perfectionism might be healthy and desirable. Based upon the 60-odd studies that we've done, we think that's a misunderstanding. <laughs> Working hard, being committed, diligent, and so on, these are all desirable features. But for a perfectionist, those are really a symptom or a side product of what perfectionism is. Perfectionism isn't about high standards. It's about unrealistic standards. Perfectionism isn't a behavior. It's a way of thinking about yourself, unquote. Again, that was Andrew P. Hill. Um, Now, I would argue with Andrew P. Hill that a way of thinking about yourself is, in fact, a behavior. But that notwithstanding, Omaha, suffice it to say, The same white paper notes that there are primarily three types of perfectionism. Now, this is where we're about to get to next level, okay, on this topic. But I want folks, before I go into these three types of perfectionism, I want folks to sort of meditate and ruminate on what Andrew P. Hill said at the end of that quote that that I mentioned earlier. He said perfectionism isn't about high standards. It's about unrealistic standards. And that perfectionism isn't a behavior. It's a way of thinking about yourself. Now, let's go into the three types of perfectionism that Andrew in the white paper. uh, Again, this title, Perfectionism is Increasing Over Time, a meta-analysis of birth cohort differences from 1989 to 2016. In that white paper, Andrew P. Hill says there are three types of perfectionism. Self-oriented perfectionism, socially prescribed perfectionism, and other-oriented perfectionism. Self-oriented, socially prescribed, and other-oriented. Now, I'll go deeper into each of those in just a moment, but for the time being, I want to refer back to the aforementioned white paper by Thomas Curran and Andrew P. Hill, in which they define what those three types of, of perfectionism look like. And here they are. This is incredibly valuable information, so please listen closely, listeners. I'm quoting here. Perfectionism is broadly defined as a combination of excessively high personal standards and overly critical self-evaluations. Studies show self-oriented perfectionism to be the most complex of the three dimensions of perfectionism. As self-oriented perfectionism has a salient motivational component, parenthetically, he says, striving to attain perfection and avoid failure. It is often associated with seemingly adaptive achievement-related behaviors. 
However, this achievement behavior belies vulnerability to motivational and psychological difficulties that come from, among other things, tying one's self-worth to achievement and being unable to derive a lasting sense of satisfaction from one's accomplishments. Research among college students and young people, for example, has found self-oriented perfectionism to be positively associated with clinical depression, anorexia nervosa, and early death. It is also associated with greater physiological reactivity, e.g. elevated blood pressure, and ill-being, e.g. negative effect, in response to life stress and failure. The ill ill effects of self-oriented perfectionism are substantiated in recent comprehensive reviews, which found that this dimension of perfectionism positively correlates with suicide ideation and predicts increases in depression over time. Wow. Wow. So that was self-oriented perfectionism. Next is socially prescribed perfectionism. Socially prescribed perfectionism is the most debilitating of the three dimensions of perfectionism, according to Andrew Hill. This is because the perceived expectations of others are experienced as excessive, uncontrollable, and unfair, making failure experiences and negative emotional states common. Okay, common. The debilitating nature of socially prescribed perfectionism is evident in research which has found this dimension of perfectionism to be positively associated with major psychopathology, e.g. anxiety, depressive symptoms, and suicide ideation. In comparison to self-oriented perfectionism and socially prescribed perfectionism, other-oriented perfectionism has received less attention from researchers. Okay, so now we're into the third type of perfectionism. We're into other-oriented perfectionism. Other-oriented perfectionism is a distinct dimension of perfectionism because it manifests in interpersonal behaviors. As others fall short of the other-oriented perfectionist expectations, they are blamed and criticized and genuinely treated with hostility and disdain. Did you hear that? This is other-oriented perfectionism, which manifests itself, according to Andrew P. Hill, in interpersonal behaviors. I want to repeat this sentence again. As others fall short of the other-oriented perfectionist expectations, they are blamed and criticized and generally treated with hostility and disdain. In intimate relationships too, other-oriented perfectionism is problematic because it is linked with outcomes such as greater interrelational conflict. Recent studies substantiate these early findings and in addition, show that other-oriented perfectionism is strongly related to a narcissistic desire for others' admiration, unquote. So there you have it. According to Andrew P. Hill, in his article, there are three types of perfectionism, self-oriented perfectionism, socially prescribed perfectionism, and other-oriented perfectionism. Now, Regardless of where the perfectionist who might be listening to us right now, Omaha, may or may not see himself or herself falling within those three dimensions of perfectionism, I think it needs to be said that all three dimensions are derived from the same root source. And that source is the sin that resides in our hearts and the resulting desires that flow from it. 
It's Mark chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, where Jesus says this, For from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Perfectionism, like all sin, Omaha, ultimately stems from the sin of pride. Ultimately. That's where perfectionism originates. It originates ultimately from the sin of pride. It's been that way since Genesis 3. This is not, not anything new. The 17th century Puritan Richard Baxter, who lived from 1615 to 1691, said, quote, Self is the most treacherous enemy and the most insinuating deceiver in the world. Of all other vices, it is both the hardest to find out and the hardest to cure, unquote. The man who many, particularly many within reform circles, consider to be America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who lived from 1703 to 1758, said this, quote, Pride is the worst viper in the human heart. Pride is the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and of sweet communion with Christ. Pride is with the greatest difficulty rooted out. Pride is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. Pride often creeps insensibly into the midst of religion, even sometimes under the disguise of humility itself. Unquote. The 17th century Puritan Thomas Hooker, who lived from 1586 to 1647, said this, quote, The will of natural man is the worst part about him. The worst thing he has, the greatest enemy he has, is his own heart and will. It is the corrupt will of a man that keeps him under the power of his sins and keeps him off the power of an ordinance that will procure his everlasting good. The will of man is uncontrollable. It will stand out against all reasons and arguments, and nothing can move the will except God work upon it. Unquote. Omaha, what you got, man? Man, that was a that was a beast mode of a, of a section. Um, and again, as as I do when whenever we cover ground like this, uh, my encouragement to the listener is to go back, pause it right here, right? Like I, I want to give markers as you're listening to to pause here, go back uh, to pick up the three uh, types of perfectionism that were defined for you: the self-oriented perfectionism the socially prescribed perfectionism and the other oriented perfectionism. Um, as Daryl encouraged us to kind of, as we were discussing going back, I had two ditches uh, that I presented as I kind of reflected on my own life. And he said, Hey, put, put this T up. I would add to that, grab these definitions, uh, write them down on a sheet of paper and begin as you continue to, to examine your life again, against the backdrop of scripture, leverage some of these definitions. They might prove themselves again, to be, to be helpful to you. And again, that was salt and peppered with Mark 7, uh, 21 and 22 as a, as an understanding that from, from our hearts, man, all kinds of evil, uh, fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, uh, deeds of wickedness and covetousness, all, all are part of what's going on in our hearts. So again, this is just another tool, another resource, another way to examine our own hearts. Now, in, in into the notes, as you examine this uh, type of 
the the idea of perfectionism, this type of of perfectionism. Uh, many in have in mind maybe uh, a time of yesteryear, right? Uh, that th- this really doesn't go on today. It really doesn't impact us today. This is more the the, the time of June Cleaver. Like if you're old enough, you you remember uh, the Leave It to Beaver series, and they, they've got this stuff in reruns now. So you you're, you're without excuse. You don't have to be of a certain age to to know uh, the, the show Leave It to Beaver. Some some would ascribe the idea of perfectionism to June Cleaver, right? The the traditionalist uh, housewife, the stay-at-home mom who wants everything to be tidy, uh, dresses to perfection, and and keeps the house clean. But but the reality is that that perfectionism takes on many forms and and many ways in the lives of of believers and and, and unbelievers alike. As I uh, examined kind of the the the, the uh, issues that are out there regarding kind of the, the modern day perfectionist. Uh, I came across an article that was published in Penn uh, Medicine News written by Hannah Messenger. And the article mm-hmm. was titled, How Social Media Feeds Into Perfectionism. How Social Media Feeds Into Perfectionism. And Mes- uh, Messenger was quoting f- from an interview from a, from a Dr. Uh, Jeremy Tyler. I would encourage you to take a look at this uh, this uh, particular article uh, in full when when you get the opportunity. Again, it's entitled "How Social Media Feeds Into Perfectionism." I'm gonna I'm, again. I, I'm gonna dive into this quote from Dr. Jeremy Tyler, and again, it's lengthy, but I think it's worth uh, it's worth listening to and understanding so that we can get out of this this antiquated idea of perfectionism that only holds to a, a, a June Cleaver type, a traditional, mm-hmm. a, a traditionalist mom and really ebbs a, a, a Martha Stewart type, a Martha Stewart type. Right. And really ebbs and flows into the, into our lives in a modern day sense. He mm-hmm. says this again, quoting from Dr. Jeremy Tyler in this article, he says this quote, a big trigger for perfectionism is social media. And primarily it's the fear of missing out. Tyler said, quote, it can be challenging to take a step back and recognize that what is being uh, what is being posted isn't reality. What he's talking about Mm -hmm. is what's being posted on social media. What's being posted Mm -hmm. on social media Mm -hmm. isn't reality. He says many assume that people with those perfect photos don't have problems, but they do. It's important to remember that the people behind the lens, the lenses are just as stressed and nervous as everyone else. Everybody suffers at some point or feels less than perfect. Social media expression is inherently biased because very few people aim to post about their flaws. He's continuing. He says, while striving for perfection can be seen as a great- Yo, 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 ho, 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 ho. Yep, yep. I, I need to write here. Yep, yep, yep. Can you, can you, can you just repeat that last uh, uh, sentence? Yes, um, yep. That, it, that ended with posting about their flaws. Can you say yes. that again? I, I, yes. I have something I got to say here. Yeah, he said social media expression, social media expression, expressing yourself in social media is inherently biased because very few people aim to post about their flaws. Very few people aim to post about their flaws. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. My mind immediately went to John 4 and the Samaritan woman at the well. Come on, come on. See, the Samaritan woman at the well, what did she do? After that discourse with Jesus, after Mm -hmm. Jesus had peeled back all the layers of the onion of her sin, so to Mm -hmm. speak. Mm -hmm. See, she would have posted on social, she would have posted on Twitter. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Mm -hmm. Because that's what she said in the text. Right. That's what she said in John Mm 4. After that encounter with Jesus, it says she ran back into town. 
told all of her fellow Samaritans, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Mm-hmm. See, that's what the woman at the well would have done. Was she alive today and had a social media account, had an account on Twitter right, or IG or somewhere? Yep, yep. That's but a see, great catch. The, 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 the 2022 woman at the well would have said, hey, Jesus, let's take a selfie by this well. <laughs> right. Ha- hashtag, um, uh, look, look at me. Look at yes. me. I'm with Jesus. Yes. I'm with Jesus. You know, yes. that's, that's what today's uh, woman at the well would have done. Yeah. Woman at the well would never have posted it on social media uh, about her sinfulness. Yes. And how has, Jesus. Has, hashtag woman, woman with miracle worker. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Woman with miracle worker. Right. One hashtag son of God, something right. like that. She she would have she would have bragged. She would have boasted that look here here I am with Jesus. You know, hey Jesus, let's take this selfie right here, and then post it. That she had she had filters on it too, though. She she right, she had filters making making her making herself look quite glamorous. I'm sure. Right, right, right. right. She would never have posted. Hey, come 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 see this man who I met. His name is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he told me all about my sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was so full after he told me that I went and told my fellow Samaritans. And guess what? They ended up believing in him too. Mm-hmm. You see? Mm-hmm. So he's, so he, he's absolutely right. We don't want to post about our flaws. Mm-mm. Not that we should. I'm not saying we should, but I'm just saying that's the mindset uh, what he's saying there, the mindset of the 21st century social media person mm-hmm. is present to you an alternate alternate reality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to disguise the truth about themselves, you see. So that's the point I wanted to make in pointing to John 4. Yeah. You have the legit Samaritan woman at the well who would have said, yeah, this this man Jesus just told me all about my sin, mm-hmm. as opposed to the 21st century social media person who would have said, "Click selfie hashtag blah blah blah." Mm-hmm. So I, I I thought that was an incredible point that he made. I'm going to let you continue now. Yeah. I just I just had to get that out after. No, you absolutely, that. absolutely. Continue a quote from Dr. Jeremy Tyler in the article entitled "How Social Media Feeds Into." Perfectionism. He says this, while striving for perfection can be seen as a great character trait for something like a job interview, studies show that perfectionism actually can harm one's mental health. Increasingly, young adolescents hold unrealistic expectations. You said this earlier, didn't you? You, ta- you yeah. talked about unrealistic e- expectations. Yeah. In- increasingly, young adolescents hold unrealistic expectations on what they should own, on how they should look, or what they need to achieve which is linked to higher rates of anxiety. This focus on perfectionism can be destructive more than a mental health risk factor. It can be a physical one as well. Continuing mm-hmm. to quote mm-hmm. from him as well. He says this studies on the role of perfectionism and physical health in college students, for example, tell us that some of the, some that, that those striving harder for perfection tend to report more health problems such as headaches, physical tension, insomnia, as well as a decline in general health wellness over time. Essentially, what is known about perfectionism is that it can serve as an underlying cause of depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and poor physical health. You were saying all of these things Early. Right. We've already talked about all We've already exactly. covered this ground. Yep. This is just coming from another perspective as it relates to 
those engaged in social media, a, a potentially younger demographic. He, he continued to quote, he says, what's even more concerning is that the rates of mental health problems and the rates of perfectionism are actually increasing in the United mm-hmm, States. Mm-hmm, he said the mm-hmm. problem with perfectionism, Tyler says, is quite simply that perfection does not exist. Perfection does not wow. exist. Perfectionists are striving for a standard that is unattainable, which inherently sets them up for perceived failure. It's a lose-lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he also goes on to say that, that there's value in accepting flaws and making mistakes are opportunities to build character and to grow as a mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. F- finalizing the quote, he says this, quote, there's a limit to striving for perfection. It's good to a fault. Um, we have we have the right uh, we have the right intent as a culture, but we're setting the wrong goals. Accept the mistakes. We learn from them. Personally, he says, I feel wiser from making mistakes. If we're perfect creatures, we would be fairly naive. We would be a fairly naive species. Mistakes build character and empathy, and they teach us how to how to practice compassion for ourselves and others, uh, and, and and in turn others when they mess up, and and. Finally, I, I just want to say that, that, that that's the end of the quote. He, he, he I, you know, while again philosophically, uh, uh, I, I, may, I may disagree with some of his points, but I think he hits the I think he hits the nail on the head for the most part uh, in that article. And what he does is it's a it's a it's a view uh, at the at those who are uh, in social media and how that how social media has done nothing but increase our need, our desire for perfectionism. When I, when I go on social media and I see some of the, some of the filters and some of the things I just, I just recognize and realize most of the people that we're seeing in the social media space don't actually look like what we're seeing. I mean, rarely, right, right. Ra- 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 rarely any of them actually do. It's all an attempt for perfection. And this particular article it actually summed up most of the problems in this area very well. Heavy doses of social media, particularly for young people who have difficulty discerning between what is real and what is not real. This is detrimental to their mental health. What they need is heavy doses of the word of God. That's how I'll end that <clears throat> section. And, and you know, V, I really appreciate you taking us through that. And it just occurred to me as you got towards the end there that this 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 current generation of young people, I'm talking about, you know, maybe young children who are maybe age eight to age 15 or 16. Um, th- they're in a tough spot because along with social media, they have such a more expanded exposure to the culture mm-hmm. and the pressures that the culture places on them. Um, even among their peers. I mean, children can be ruthless towards one another. Mm -hmm. And children, uh, young people rather, they are more likely to be very cliquish, uh, very uh, sort of group-oriented where they they, uh, include others and include some and exclude others Mm -hmm. so that there is increased pressure on these young people to try to belong. Right. So they use social media as a result of the pressure that the culture and their peers within the culture put on them to be somebody they're not. And when they don't measure up to that, you we've both seen uh, uh, in the news cases of very young people uh, committing suicide, taking their own lives mm-hmm. uh, because they've been ridiculed mm-hmm. by their peers. They've been talked down to by their peers. They've been told they don't measure up. They don't look a certain way. They don't act a certain way. They don't talk a certain way. They get ostracized uh, by their 
those groups in, into which they don't fit in. Um, uh, so this 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 current generation, social media is not their friend in that mm-hmm. regard. No, no. Um, it's, it's actually their enemy because they they are exposed because I mean, listen, we, probably um, I don't know what the percentage would be, but there's some seven, eight year olds out there who already have their own smartphone. Yeah. They yeah. Have, have their own smart device. Yeah. So they 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 know how to navigate uh, the Internet and how to navigate between social media platforms. And they're seeing this stuff. Yeah. Um, one one of ahead. the things one of the things, man, that I, I appreciate about uh, about you, one, you, you're, you're the dean of social media for GTY. And so you 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 live on social media. You see you know, everything in that space. One of the things I appreciate about the way that you leverage it and use it is it's primarily for the purpose of education. Uh, you are constantly and consistently examining culture through the lens of a biblical worldview. And, and, it, and it's eye-opening for most people who don't think as quickly as you do, especially, man, folks, folks, think, f- folks enjoy our podcast uh, and hearing you kind of go, uh, walk through the ideas that we do uh, in a, in a, in a you know, auditory way from, from a standpoint of, of hearing the audio version of what we do. Uh, I would encourage them to get on your on your Twitter page because what you do in writing is is beast mode. Like it's it's a whole nother level. But but you leverage the platform for the purpose of education. I I, I contrast that with how young girls are using the platform. Uh, they're looking for platforms like Instagram and and Snapchat. Uh, and, and are exposing themselves for the purpose of gaining attention, feeling feeling right. that they have to look a certain way to gain followers, to get to get the attention that they would normally seek uh, in inappropriate ways. Hopefully, uh, live and in person, they're more comfortable seeking that attention in inappropriate ways through right. through what they would engage in on in social media. And the problem mm-hmm. with that is, as they do so in more openly explicit ways. They're, they're damaging opportunities for their future. All of this is an attempt for perfection. Why? They want to look a certain way. They want to mm-hmm. be a certain way. They want acceptance to a certain level. They want to obtain so many followers. So again, all of that feeds into the point that you were making earlier about, about how, how social media in this current context uh, is, is not your friend, especially if there's not, not some uh, really objective uh, oversight of the medium. And most parents are totally disengaged. They actually let social media babysit their kids for them. So they don't have to engage them. Talk wow. With them or, you know, wow. But that, 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 that's, that's another topic for a whole nother show. Bro, I, do you, do you really want to go there? Oh, right. I think we just did. <laughs> right. I think we just did. That's an excellent point. Babysit. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And I think, you know, I can't quantify this. I have to do the research. I, I think there are probably some data out there to support this, but sadly that's what many parents do. They feel like, They'll sort of default to getting their their young child a uh, a smart device uh, as a babysitting babysitting mechanism mm-hmm, mm-hmm. While, while they pursue other things um, as as opposed to focusing on raising that child and what what they don't realize is that their child is seeking the self worth they're seeking mm-hmm. the self uh, they're seeking the value that they should be getting from their parents right and because they're not getting it from their parents hey I'm just gonna log on IG right and get it from out here. I'm just right. going to log on Facebook and get it from here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to log on Twitter and get it from here. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and V, before I, before I um, um, begin my commentary on, on, on the section that you just ended, would you mind uh, giving once again the title of that article that you just cited and who wrote it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was an article uh, published in Penn Medicine News. You can find it, Hannah 
H-A-N-N-A-H, Messinger, M-E-S-S-I-N-G-E-R. Uh, the, the article is titled, How Social Media Feeds Into Perfectionism. How Social Media Feeds Into Perfectionism. So it's a, it's a lengthy article. I, I took a big section of it uh, from, a, a, from an interview that she had with a, with a, uh, a scholar in the area, uh, Dr. Jer- Jeremy Tyler. And so that's mm-hmm. what I quoted from. Very good, bro. I appreciate you bringing that uh, resource to our attention. Now, we said at the outset of this episode, Omaha, that this was not going to be your typical feel-good episode. Mm-hmm. We were very upfront about that, uh, but I think the article that you just cited uh, gives me a good segue into uh, going over with our listeners what I'm calling the Ten Commandments of Perfectionism. <laughs> Or the Ten Commandments of the Perfectionist, more accurately. These are the Ten Commandments of the Perfectionist. Uh, these are my own thoughts. Uh, these were not compiled uh, uh, from a secondary source. Uh, but uh, again, I thought that in the spirit of Ephesians 4.15, the entire verse, not just part of it, um, we need to confront the perfectionist with these realities. So these are the 10 commandments of perfectionists. And by commandments, I mean that these are the 10 sort of um, rules by which the perfectionist lives. There may be more than 10, <coughs> excuse me. There may be more than 10, but there are at least these 10. Okay. So if you're ready, buckle up because here come the 10 commandments of perfectionists. Commandment number one, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. That's the first commandment of the perfectionist. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment of the perfectionist because the perfectionist is a kind of God, small g, in that they get to make all the rules by which they and everyone else are to live. And by doing so, they get to determine who sins and who is forgiven. That's why that's commandment number one. Mm -hmm. Thou shalt not have... Any other gods before me. Commandment number two, thou shalt be perfect as I am perfect. (laughs) Thou shalt be perfect as I am perfect. Now, in saying this, it's not so much that everything needs to be perfect for the perfectionist, but that everything has to be right and in order as they define it, as the perfectionists define it. So another way of saying perfectionist, uh, Omaha, another word is to to use, another word we could use to, to sort of replace that with, is to say that the perfectionist is a my wayist. Gotcha. Yeah. The perfectionist is a my wayist, meaning that, that that things have to be their way. Or the perfectionist could also be said that they are a rightist. A rightist, meaning that everything has to be right, meaning everything has to be in order. Because if anything is out of order, and by out of order, I'm not speaking only in terms of objects and things around the perfectionist not being perfectly aligned or coordinated with one another. I'm speaking of the perfectionist plans being even minimally interrupted or disrupted in any way. So that's commandment two. Thou shalt be perfect as I am perfect. Okay. Understanding that that doesn't mean that everything has to be perfectly in order, but that for the perfectionist, Everything has to be right. It has to be going along as they would desire things to go along. Commandment number three, thou shalt help, thou shalt accept help from me, 
but never offer any help to me. That's commandment three. Thou shalt accept help from me, but never offer any help to me. You see, the perfectionist doesn't want any help from others because whatever it is they need done, they want it done right. And the only way to do it right or perfectly is to do it themselves. The perfectionist rarely, if ever, asks for help from anyone else. Okay? So that's commandment three. Thou shalt accept help from me, but never offer any help to me. Commandment number four, thou shalt not disappoint me ever. That's commandment four. Thou shalt not disappoint me ever. This commandment is connected to commandment number one, where thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's connected to commandment number one because by setting the rules, the perfectionist also sets the standard by which others are to perform for them. Needless to say, it's a standard that can never be met consistently. You touched on that earlier, Omaha. The the standard can't be met, but the perfectionist doesn't realize that. Commandment number five, thou shalt do all things as I would do them. Thou shalt do all things as I would do them. That's commandment number five of the perfectionist. This commandment connects to commandment number three. It connects because the perfectionist always knows a better way to do everything. Conversely, the perfectionist can often be extremely critical of how others do anything, and they'll let you know it, oftentimes in a very passive-aggressive kind of way. So that's commandment five, thou shalt do all things as I would do them. Commandment number six, thou shalt always seek my approval. Thou shalt always seek my approval. This is the commandment that makes life most difficult, I believe, for those who are closest to the perfectionist epicenter, because you're constantly trying to avoid doing or saying anything that will upset the perfectionist. It's like walking on rice paper 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Omaha, have you ever seen anyone try to walk on rice paper? No. It's it's impossible. It's impossible to walk unless you're a ninja, unless you're like a level 10 ninja. You cannot walk on, I'm, I'm talking barefoot. You cannot walk on rice paper barefoot without tearing it. It's impossible to do. So that's commandment six. Thou shalt always seek my approval. Commandment seven. Thou shalt not be happy. Thou shalt not be happy. It is a sad truth, Omaha, that many professionals who profess to be Christians lack the joy of the Lord. I'm not saying that that's the case with every professing Christian who is a perfectionist, but my experience has been that the rules and laws they live by on a daily basis robs them and it robs others around them of the joy that comes only from living daily for Jesus Christ. So that's commandment number seven. Thou shalt not be happy. Commandment number eight is similar to that, but different. Commandment number eight is thou shalt not be content. Thou shalt not be content. We talked about discontentment earlier, but this commandment is a direct result of commandment number seven. Because the perfectionist is rarely, if ever, happy, he or she is rarely, rarely, if ever, content. This is because, to a great degree, the Christian perfectionist has not yet learned to enjoy God. Mm. That's That's serious. The Christian perfectionist has not yet learned to enjoy God. And that enjoyment of God begins with the perfectionist realizing that they are not him. Hello. Mm-hmm. 
when you realize that you're not going to start to enjoy the God who is God. That's commandment eight. Thou shalt not be content. Commandment number nine of the Christian perfectionist, thou shalt always require, but never request. Mm. Thou shalt always require, but never request. What do I mean by that? This commandment connects to commandment number one, in which the perfectionist sets all the rules. Consequently, they put themselves in the position of requiring and demanding of other people, never requesting or asking, asking of them. This is because the perfectionist often lacks genuine Christ-like grace and mercy. They lack it first for themselves, and because they lack it for themselves, they lack it for others as well. You will rarely find um, overt evidence of a perfectionist being very graceful and merciful. You will rarely, rarely see that. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they demand stuff. They require stuff. It's very hard for a perfectionist to say, please. Number one, it's hard for them to ask for help to begin with. But it's very, it's even harder for them to, to, to do that with a, a, a attitude of humility and grace. It's very hard. Lastly, commandment number 10, thou shalt always condemn, but never forgive. Thou shalt always condemn, but never forgive. This commandment is a direct as thou shalt always require, but never request. Mm-hmm. Because the perfectionist, because the perfectionist lacks grace and mercy, naturally develops into an attitude of judgment and condemnation, both of themselves and of others, which in turn develops into a mindset in which forgiveness is almost non-existent. And where condemnation is ever present, regardless of how hard you may try to please them. Mm. Let me say that again. Again, commandment 10, thou shalt always condemn, never forgive. Because the perfectionist lack of grace and mercy naturally develops into an attitude of judgment and condemnation. Both of them, the, both of themselves and of others. So they're judging and condemning themselves and they're doing it to others as well. And that in turn develops into a mindset in which forgiveness is almost non-existent and where condemnation is ever present, regardless of how hard you may try to please the perfectionist. As a matter of fact, in many cases, even when the perfectionist says they have forgiven you of something, see, for the perfectionist, being let down is a sin. Letting them down is a sin. Mm -hmm. Letting the perfectionist down. That's why I said one of the commandments, which one was it? Um, it was commandment number four. Thou shalt not disappoint me ever. See, to disappoint the perfectionist is, is you, you may as well have sinned against that person. They interpret you not meeting their expectations as sin. Mm-hmm. So even when they have even and, 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 and they demand forgiveness of you from for that, you haven't sinned. You've just let them down. It, it, it may be you may have met you may have you may not have met a known expectation. Or it might have been an unmet, unknown expectation, one that they didn't even let you know about. Mm-hmm. But regardless, in situations where the perfectionist grants forgiveness, it's never really true forgiveness. Because the perfectionist is both a legalist and a mathematician. <laughs> what I mean by that, the perfectionist lives by the law for themselves and for you. And then when you violate the law, they keep count. That's what makes them a mathematician. Uh-huh. 
because they keep count. They keep adding, adding, and adding. So even though the perfection says, okay, I forgive you, they, they say it with their mouths, but not in their heart because they never forget. They never forget that you let them down. So they keep count. That's what I mean when I say that the perfection, the perfectionist is both a legalist and a mathematician mm-hmm. because they, they, they got the Ten Commandments in one hand, the Ten Commandments of the perfectionist in one hand, and they got a calculator in the other. That's how the perfectionist operates. Mm-hmm. What you got, Omar? Man, I thought that was a great section. And again, it took a tremendous amount of a time to think through those pieces for you to come up with the Ten Commandments of perfectionist. And so again, it's just great, great stuff uh, that you had in that section. As I thought about this, I started thinking about that what we talked about earlier, which was you're you're not gonna open up scripture and find the word perfectionist or perfectionism. And so it's important, I think, for the listeners to know what they're when they see scripture, what they're dealing with. Uh, how, how do they unpack the ideas of, pers- of of perfectionism when they identify it in their own lives? And, and how do they apply scripture to those particular issues? So as you put together the kind of the 10 commandments, I started looking for 10 verses of scripture that I let's could go, point, let's go. That, yeah, that I could point people to and just say, Hey, here's some ways to think about it from a standpoint of a identifying it, B exposing it for the sinfulness that it is uh, and C have, being able to apply scripture uh, to, to that particular issue. Uh, so that if you're walking in, in the ever increasing levels of sanctification, you can see success in this area of your life. And so with that, I, I, I'll give you 10 quick verses of scripture. Uh, again, not di- they, they don't directly say it's not an explicit, uh, a text on perfectionism, but what it is, is that as we talked about, discussed earlier, the concept is there, the idea is there. And what you see reflected in the scripture is how God is dealing with that particular issue. Second Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 12, verses nine and 10. This is Paul speaking. He says, but to me, he said, but to me, he said, and the, he is, is, is God himself said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for when I am weak, then I am strong. I think about what you just talked about and how, you know, any, any kind of chaos, any kind of situation, circumstance where, where the perfectionist is not in complete control is problematic for them. And here Paul is saying, as he was dealing with, with what we know scripturally is a thorn in the flesh, when he was dealing with that, he, he prayed to the Lord to remove it. And, and what the response is that my grace is sufficient for you, that the response from God is my grace is sufficient for you. Rather than, rather than appealing to, to being perfect, having all of the wisdom, of course, that Paul had, having all of the revelation that Paul had, here was a situation where, where weakness was a part of his natural condition. And in that, he bragged about that because he recognized that in his weakness, the power of Christ can be made strong. I won't exegete each text that way, but I just thought to give you a little bit more context around that. First John verse 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us and the truth is not in us. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Again, it exposes the idea 
of perfectionism. Philippians chapter three, verses 12 through 14. This is Paul nearing the end of his life, right? Recognizing that uh, as he's writing to the church at Philippi. And he says this, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in, of God in Christ Jesus. You were just mentioning earlier in this last section how how the the perfectionist is is a, is, is a mathematician, right? He's, he's keeping count of the mm-hmm. sins against him, mm-hmm. right? Paul is mm-hmm. not doing any of that, not only for others, but for his own life. He's not even thinking right. about that regarding his own life. He's forgetting mm-hmm. that, which is behind right. And straining toward what lies ahead, which is the That's prize a great point, Bert. Of, the up, of the upward call. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3 says, Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit and are now being perfected by the flesh? Again, this is the idea of, of, of the church at, at Galatia looking for works-based righteousness in order to obtain eternal life. Paul starts that by, by saying, who, Who's bewitched you? Who's, who's, who, who's, who's given you unwise counsel about this thing that you're now trying to add something to uh, the, the salvific work? of Christ and him crucified. Are you foolish? He, he says to the Galatians, have, have, uh, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The idea there behind the question is that that's, that's crazy. There's no way mm-hmm. for you to mm-hmm. be perfected by mm-hmm. the flesh. It mm-hmm. is only by and through the spirit of God uh, in, 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 in and through Christ Jesus. First John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness, all imperfectness, all imperfection. First Corinthians chapter two, verses one through six, he says this, and I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, Paul is saying, I wasn't perfect in my, even, even my pronunciation of Christ, even in my explanation of Christ. I didn't have perfect speeches in the way that, that some of the orators uh, do that, 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 that are uh, the philosophers do as, as the, uh, the folks in, in, uh, in Corinth love to hear these philosophers pontificate about the, these great ideas. Paul is saying, I didn't come to you with that. He said, for mm-hmm. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the spirit of God and that your faith might not rest in with the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Luke chapter 16, verse 15 says this, and he said to them, you are, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. John chapter seven, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. There's all kinds of things that we could unpack uh, with with that. Uh, most of what you see in The Perfectionist is all an outward show. It's an outward uh, a presentation of that which is right and good and perfect. And, and we're told not to judge by those means, by those measures, but to judge with righteous judgment. In other words, to judge according to the word of God. Finally, Matthew 11, chapter 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's rest for the perfectionist, and that rest is only found in Christ and Him crucified. That's what I've got for that section. Wonderful section, Omaha. You know, I think, matter of fact, after you've done that, I think this will be a good time for us to refer back to the article titled Counseling the Perfectionist by Miss Cody Newcomb. Mm-hmm. 
I, I want to do that because I don't want to leave any of our listeners who are struggling with perfectionism feeling as if they have no hope. Right. I mean, I recognize, you know, we we've come down uh, to this point in the episode and we warned, we alerted our listeners to this, that this was, this was not going to be your rainbows, lollipop, unicorn episode. Um, you know, so we let them know that right off the top, but we don't want to want them to think that, wow, you know, um, we're just coming down with the hammer all the time and, and, and not, not, uh, not having a feather in our pocket. So we, we do. However, uh, like I said earlier, um, we're to speak the truth in love. Uh, 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 we, we don't just, uh, and this whole idea of love has been so distorted mm-hmm. in the church anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like I said earlier, we, 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 we we're going to lose with some listeners to this episode, regardless of how careful we try to be. Right. Uh, but, but with that in mind, I do want to go back to the article by Ms. Cody Newcomb counseling the perfectionist, <clears throat> because I think in this article, she really lays out the hope that the perf- Christian perfectionist has in Christ. And in that article, she continues with these words, quote, perfectionism traps and enslaves the counselee. Remember, let me pause here and just remember now, Ms. Newcomb is a certified biblical counselor, and she's writing this article to biblical counselors, okay? So when you hear the word counselee, counselor, just kind of understand that that's the framework in which she's working. Perfectionism traps and enslaves the counselee. The laws they create for themselves and others can never be satisfied. Consequently, they turn inward and their focus becomes self-obsessed as they constantly seek to find their and their and others failures and be better next time. There is an insidious pride that lurks in the heart of the perfectionist. They rely on their own works. They craft their own standards to be measured by. And ultimately, they believe the lie that their performance can justify them. Galatians 2.16. The Bible gives the perfectionist the antidote for, antidote for this pride, which is to put on humility. That's Colossians 3.12, James 4.16, and 1 Peter 5.5. 5. There is liberty and joy that comes from humbly knowing that apart from the work of Jesus, anything that is of value or worth before him. That's John 15, 5. The perfectionist must truly understand that their righteous deeds are but filthy rags in God's eyes. That's Isaiah 64, 6. And cling to his righteousness alone. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Furthermore, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, practically instructs the perfectionist how to think less about themselves and more about others. We are told not to be selfish or full of conceit, but to be humble by thinking of others as more important than ourselves. As perfectionists are tempted to turn inward, <coughs> excuse me, as perfectionists are tempted to turn inward and focus on their own achievements and successes, verse 4 of Philippians 2 exhorts them to consider the needs of others instead of their own personal interests. The cure for self-obsession and a desire to be perfect is not only to humble oneself, but to radically shift the focus off oneself and on to serving and caring, unquote. Pride, Omaha, and the lack of humility, they both go together. Mm -hmm. They always go together. It seems all our sins, regardless of what the specific sin is or sins are, 
seem always to come down to those two things fundamentally. They come down to pride and a lack, or in some instances, a complete absence of humility. I want to again quote Dr. Jerry Bridges from his book, The Blessings of, of Humility, where Dr. Bridges says this, quote, believers who are growing continue to see more sin in their lives. Now, I don't know if I made someone pull off the road with that, but Bridges is right. He says believers who are growing continue to see more sin in their lives, in that they begin to, to become more aware, more sensitive to the sin in their lives. Bridges says it is not that they are sinning more, rather they are becoming more aware of and more sensitive to the sin that has been there all along. It is not the flagrant sins of society around us, but rather such sins as our selfishness, our pride, our jealousy and envy, and above all, our judgmental spirit towards others. And it is the realization that even these sins, which seem so minor in our eyes, will bring us under the wrath of God were it not for the atoning blood of Christ shed for us on the cross that should cause us to be poor in spirit. The person who is poor in spirit recognizes that his or her best deeds are always mingled with the corruption of one's sinful nature, with impure, that is, mixed motives, and with imperfect performance. This person recognizes that he or she never comes close to obeying the law of God as Jesus defined it in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, to love God with all our being and to love our neighbors as ourselves, unquote. Mm -hmm. Omaha, thoughts on that? Man, that that was a great section, especially the the last quote that you gave, which is what's called the greatest commandment, right? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Far too many Christians, unfortunately, especially the perfectionists, believe that this this, uh, command, uh, that this commandment, is actually the good news of the gospel. I was I was in a I was in a class where uh, someone just really wisely asked, "Okay, uh, good news." I think I think the way they phrased it was law law or gospel. <laughs> they said, "Is this law or gospel?" Uh, and they said, uh, "You know, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself." And I was shocked at how many said, "Oh, that's gospel. Like that's good news." No, that's not good news. Uh, yeah. That that's law. Uh, and right. what what the perfectionist does with that is they 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 embrace that as if that's the gospel uh, right. and, and and engage that and try to live out their lives according. And that doesn't mean that we're not to we're not to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. Right. But we're to do so with the clear understanding that we'll never do that perfectly. Right. That we'll, we'll never be able. And, and, to, and they and neither will they do that perfectly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there, there was only one who was able to fulfill the greatest commandment, and that person was Jesus. On our best day, it, with our greatest strength, we will fail to love God perfectly, and we'll fail to love our neighbor perfectly. Our, the only hope that we have is in the propitiatory work of Christ who died on a cross, absorbing the wrath of God that was due you and I. I, I, I know that there are probably not a lot of people that listen to our podcast, but I know that there are a lot of people uh, in evangelicalism that, uh, that, that, that don't embrace uh, the doctrines of grace, that don't embrace what's known as 
Calvinism. And my, my preference is, is, is the word monergism. I believe that salvation is a work of God alone, uh, not based upon anything I did or would do in the future. But this was a salvation was a sovereign act on his part as, as, as he sent his son to die for his elect. And so in all of that, I'm reminded not of how good I am, uh, but, but how good God is. Uh, and how wretched I am, right? That's that's Ephesians chapter two, right? I'm dead in sin and transgressions. Transgressions, which and once I I used to in ways I used to walk, following the the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, the, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. If I understand that that depth of magnitude of my wretchedness, I will never appeal to my own innate goodness. I will always mm, appeal. Yeah, that's good to the finished work of Christ mm-hmm. and him crucified. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what I have for that section, man. <clears throat> Another good word, Omaha, you know, in his book on the mortification of sin and believers, the noted Puritan John Owen said this, he said, the choicest believers who are assuredly free of the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all the days of their life to mortify the indwelling power of sin, unquote. Mm-hmm. Conversely, the 17th century Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Evil of Evils, had this exhortation for the church. Burroughs said, quote, Oh, all you who love God hate sin. Let your hearts be set against sin because it is so much against God, unquote. I mentioned those two uh, uh, citations. I cite those two uh, sources because one of the most challenging verses of Scripture for the perfectionists, and indeed for all believers, is Proverbs twenty-seven nineteen which in the NASB reads, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Now, those words from Proverbs 27, 19 are important for us to consider because the perfectionist either fails or refuses to see the reflection of him or self or herself for who he or she really is. Commandment number two, in which they see themselves as perfect or at least as more right than other people. Now I say that because as I said before, the perfectionist doesn't want help from anyone. It's not that the perfectionist can't or won't ever acknowledge that they have faults on a good day. They'll readily admit that they fall short of God's standard as well as everybody else. The problem, however, is that the perfectionist is convinced that they can fix those faults themselves without anyone else's help, advice, counsel, or assistance. You've addressed this multiple times in our discussion so far, Omaha. You've you've uh, reiterated that we need one another. And I want to talk about that a little bit later. But the problem for the perfectionists, although, as I said, on a good day, they'll admit they have faults. But their problem is that the perfectionist is, the perfectionist is convinced that they can fix their faults by themselves and that they don't need anyone's help. The motto of the perfectionist is, I don't need you, I've got this. That's the motto of the perfectionist, I've got this. Consequently, everyone else needs to just mind their own business and get out of the way. The perfectionists believe, that perfectionists believe they can fix themselves is one of the many lies they've allowed themselves to believe. It's a lie that comes straight from the father of lies himself. That's Satan. That's John 8, 44. The last thing a professing Christian who is a perfectionist needs to do is to believe the lie that they don't need help from anyone. 
It is an attitude which, needless to say, is completely antithetical to the gospel. And I want our listeners to consider that against the backdrop of these words from Dr. David Paulison, who in his book titled How Sanctification Works, says this, quote, Other people always matter. Often a friend, perhaps even a stranger, shows himself or herself to be significantly caring or admirably wise. Some church community communicates in word and worship, in actions and attitudes, something attractive and right. The more you grow, the more you realize how other people and the gathered church matter. The more you grow, the more scripture appears early in the process. You come to orient yourself by scripture, by Mm. learning to listen, You learn to identify sin more accurately. You learn the kinds of people to rely on. You learn Jesus. As you take scripture to heart, you become like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in season. And by definition, and by definition, a person who changes takes action. Did you hear that? A person who changes takes action. You do something. Paulison says, you believe something, you ask for help from a friend, from God, from both. You make different choices. You change your mind, your attitudes, your feelings, your goal in life, the way you treat others, your habits. And you find sooner or later that God himself has been working all along within the hardships and the sin, amid the sins, by the friendships, through his word, in you. The farther you walk on this road, the more you realize that God is the decisive actor and foundational factor in the drama, unquote. That was Dr. David Paulison from his excellent book titled How Sanctification Works. And I love what Dr. Paulison said. He said, a person who changes takes action. You put that change into work. I really appreciate what Paulson said there, Omaha, because fundamentally, what you and I have been talking about over the course of this entire episode of the Just Thinking podcast is sanctification. Mm-hmm. That's fundamentally what we could talk. If you could reduce everything that we've said to this point to one word, it would be sanctification. More specifically, we've been talking about how the professing Christian who was struggling all its various forms and manifestations can pursue sanctification by imitating the humility of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Dr. Bob Kellerman writes in his book titled Scripture and Counseling, subtitled God's Word for Life in a Broken World, quote, Christ-centered counseling is not counselor-centered counseling. That is, seeking to conform people into our desired image. Mm -hmm. Nor is it client-centered counseling, seeking to conform people into their desired image. Christ-centered counseling is person-centered counseling with a capital P. We point people to a person who is external to us and to them, seeking to conform them into the objective image of of Jesus, mm-hmm. unquote. Now, speaking of being conformed into the objective image of Jesus, I don't want to quote from the book titled Picture Perfect, subtitled When Life Doesn't Line Up by Dr. Amy Baker. 
Dr. Baker is the Ministry Resource Director at Faith Bible Church in Lafayette, Indiana, and is an instructor and counselor at Faith Bible Counseling Ministries. In the aforementioned book, Dr. Baker writes this, quote, It's impossible to have a relationship with the God of perfection. You can't have a genuine relationship with something that isn't alive. When we live for the God of perfection, our lives will be oriented around tasks and performance and appearances. These will be a burden to us and eventually become meaningless. It is grace that trains us how to live godly lives done from a heart that loves God, not from a system of rules we impose on ourselves to become perfect. It is the grace of God that teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and love for him that makes us want to. It is love for God that causes us to desire his grace to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. When we want to be like Jesus, this begins to be reflected in our actions. Our relationships start to change. Instead of spending our time wondering what others think of us and making our goal in relationships to keep others from being mad at us, we we begin to genuinely love others instead of fearing them and their disapproval. We begin to seek the good of others rather than solely our own good. Yes. In fact, we begin to consider their interests as more important than our own. Yes. And as we do, we start to look more like Jesus, our perfect Savior. Yes. This is not the product of a heart whose goal is to make us look good or to achieve some self-focused desire. This is the work of God that empowers us to grow in the likeness of Christ and thereby magnify our Savior. And becoming like Jesus pleases God, unquote. Again, that was Dr. Amy Baker from her book, I'm sorry, Picture Perfect, When Life Doesn't Add Up. Now, before I turn it over to you, Omaha, for your thoughts, I want you to notice Uh, the emphasis that Dr. Baker places on becoming like Jesus. She said that in uh, various ways, multiple times in that quote that I just read, becoming like Jesus. And that's just another way of saying sanctification. Right. right. Sanctification. Sanctification is becoming more like Jesus. Mm -hmm. It goes back to something I said earlier, Omaha, who are you believing? Yes. Who are you serving? I'm talking to the perfectionists out there. Who are you believing? Who are you serving? You see, the Christian who is struggling with perfectionism needs to realize that sanctification, not perfection, is the goal. Mm -hmm. Sanctification, not perfection, is the goal. Grace of God, not by a system of rules that serve only to make you and everyone else around you Absolutely miserable. <laughs> miserable. Mm-hmm. Who are you? So the, the two questions I asked earlier, those are, <clears throat> those, those are, those, the, the, who are you believing? Who are you serving? I think we all know the answers to those questions. The perfectionist believing himself, he is serving himself. Thoughts on all. Well, there's a lot that you laid down in that particular section. And as you continue to drive home the point that all of what we're doing uh, in this 
uh, particular episode can be boiled down to the word sanctification. It drove me back to Romans chapter eight. Um, and, mm-hmm. and it's at this point that I'm, I'm going to commend to our listeners uh, to go. If you have not ever downloaded the, uh, the GTY app, uh, grace to you, the grace to you app. Uh, I can't, I, when I think of all of the sermons that I've ever listened to from Dr. John MacArthur, I, I would I would argue that there's probably uh, none more impactful to me than going through the section of Romans chapter eight and having him preach all the way through the uh, the, the chapter eight, all the way through chapter eight. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I I would encourage you to to if you're struggling with this particular issue of of perfectionism, uh, or you want to improve uh, and, and your walk in the area of of godly sanctification, spend the next week, weeks, uh, month walking through the sermons done by Dr. John MacArthur on Romans chapter eight. I want to give you a moment to concur because I, I know that you will, and uh, I wanted to tee it up so that you, you wouldn't look look like you were just, uh, you know, you were just promoting for for your for your boss. Yeah, I appreciate you doing that, V. Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> you doing that. Yeah, <clears throat> I appreciate you doing that, man. Yeah, but but I, I, I you know I I can't think of a better way to to to, to just kind of crystallize this section. I'll I'll simply do this and just quote from a section of of Romans eight, and then and then I'll turn it back. I'm going to commend to you by way of homework, right? If this is a biblical counseling session, that's your homework. Your homework is to go uh, grab Romans 8, especially after you've listened to this podcast, uh, read through it yourself, and then listen to Dr. John MacArthur uh, exposit through the scriptures and preach through that section of scripture. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17, read this way. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Listen to this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This should be the cry of the perfectionist, not, okay, I'm going to double down. I'm going to do it better. I'm going to figure mm-hmm, it out. Mm-hmm, it should be mm-hmm. that they're, that they're resting in the fact if they, if, if they've indeed uh, uh, repented of sin and placed their faith in Christ and are indeed walking with him, uh, they should be able to cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit mm-hmm. himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Uh, I, I, I would, I would, uh, I would be remiss not to pause here and just to say that for us to consider that what we have inherited is that which we share with Christ. Christ has received his 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 payment in full for the finished work on the cross, for the sacrifice that he that, that, that he's made on our behalf. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and all that is His is indeed ours, and we share. We are co heirs with Him. That is not on the basis of how perfect we are. We are imperfect, but he is indeed perfect. We must remember that, provided we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified 
with him. And again, that suffering goes back to the acknowledgement of our sinfulness, the acknowledgement of our need for him, the, 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 rep- the, the repentance that we talked about in this particular episode that should be the lifeblood of the believer. We should be constantly repenting of sin as, as, we, as we grow in sanctification, as we grow uh, in our walk with Christ, sin will be more evident to us. Not that it wasn't there before, but that we mm-hmm. are more aware and sensitive to that sin. And as a result, we walk out, we walk that out in repentance. And so that's kind of what I'll share with that. I'll also say this too, and, and, and by way of wrapping up this section, one of the reasons why uh, attendance at a local church is so critical to the life of the believer is because we, we one, we surround ourselves with imperfect people right? Nobody in the mm-hmm. body of Christ is, mm-hmm. is perfect, but but we are reminded as we gather of our need for the gospel, right? The gospel mm-hmm. is not simply the, the punched ticket to heaven. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the gospel is what we need in every area of our lives as we grow in sanctification, awaiting our final reward. I'll stop there. I love how you said that, V. You know, as I listen to you, I grab my Bible and I turn to Galatians 5, <clears throat> Verse 1, in NESB it reads, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Yes. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the yoke of slavery that Paul is alluding to there is is slavery to the law. Mm -hmm. And the perfectionist is enslaved to their own kind of law. I think we've been we've made that clear. Absolutely. uh, Over the course of this episode. And you go back to my list of the Ten Commandments of the perfectionist. And I said this earlier, the reason those Ten Commandments exist, the reason those Ten Commandments are reality in the life of the perfectionist is because, as I said earlier, the perfectionist, the the perfectionist who professes to be a Christian, they have not yet learned to enjoy God. (laughs) They haven't. Yeah. They have, they have, they have no real affinity for what Paul is talking about here in Galatians Mm 5.1. The freedom the freedom that is yours in Jesus Christ by faith. Mm-hmm. Paul wants you. This is what he's preaching to the Galatians. He, want, he wanted the Galatians to realize that freedom in their life. And we want that for you who may be listening to this, who is a professing Christian and a perfectionist. We want that same thing for you. I'm a big, 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 big believer, Omaha, in Christians living every day in the joy of the Lord. Mm-hmm. I don't care what is going on in your life. It's, it's why I hold so tightly to what I've said many times on this platform. It's my favorite, arguably my favorite verse in the entire Bible. Ecclesiastes 7, 14. Mm-hmm. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, remember that the Lord has created the one as well as the other. I don't have bad days. Mm-hmm. I don't. And I don't like being around people 
especially Christians, because I said this many, many times, a joyless Christian is a walking oxymoron. I don't like, listen, nail me to the wall on this if you want to. I just don't like being around joyless people. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't. I just don't understand it. How any professing believer in Christ can walk around joyless, walk around discontent, walk around grumbling and complaining, walk around with a legalism, legalistic cloud hanging over their head, knowing that their sins have all been forgiven and that they have been saved from God's wrath. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's Lamentations 3.39. How can any man or any mortal give complaint in view of his sins? Yeah. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now you contrast that yoke of slavery, Omaha, with the yoke that Christ says we are to take up. Right. What does Jesus say? He yeah. says, take my yoke upon you. See, here's the deal. Most yokes are placed on you. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. The yoke is usually placed around an oxen or an animal or some other animal to guide them or to keep them going in a certain direction. But see, the yoke that Christ gives us is not like that. It's not a yoke that is forced. He says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I commend to you, uh, as we begin to wrap up this episode on a biblical response to perfectionism, I commend to you Galatians 5.1 to meditate on that, on that verse, memorize it, and begin to appropriate it by God's grace and by his spirit in your life. Because if you're not appropriating it, then you're doing exactly what Paul is exhorting the Galatians to no longer do, is to live, be subject rather to a yoke of slavery. Yeah. Now, as we um, as we prepare to close this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, Omaha, I want to quote once again from the very encouraging and helpful book, You Can Change, by Dr. Tim Chester. And I would encourage every believer, especially those who are struggling with this issue of perfectionism, to get a copy of the book, You Can Change, by Dr. Ch Dr. Tim Chester. I want to quote once more from that book. And I have one more quote, and then we'll be able to, we'll be ready to wrap up here. But in You Can Change, Dr. Tim Chester says this, quote, Our Christian lives began when we received the Spirit by believing in Christ crucified, not when we finally managed to observe the law. It's foolish to think. It's foolish to think we can now take over and finish the job through human effort. Our motive for change is to enjoy the freedom from sin and delight in God that God gives us through Jesus. That's exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. The perfectionist has to learn to delight in God. Dr. Chester continues, growing in holiness is not sad, dutiful drudgery. 
It's about joy. It's discovering true joy, the joy of knowing and serving God. There is self-denial, sometimes hard and painful, but true self-denial leads to gaining your life. That's Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 37. Change is about living in freedom. We were just talking about that, Omaha. We refuse to go back to the chains and filth of our sin. We live in the wonderful freedom that God has given us. That's Galatians 5.1. We're free to be the people we should be. Change is about discovering the delight and knowing and serving God. Discovering the light of knowing and serving God. Our job is to stop wallowing around in the dirt and instead to enjoy knowing God, to give up our cheap imitations and enjoy the real thing. Becoming like Jesus is something God gives to us. It's not an achievement that we offer him. Oh, that's good. It's enjoying. Yes, good. He says becoming like Jesus is something God gives to us. It's not an achievement that we offer him. It's enjoying the new identity he has given us in Christ. Sin offers so much, but it doesn't deliver and it charges a high price. Broken lives, broken relationships, broken hopes. The law isn't meant to be the starting point for change. It's meant to bring us to the end of ourselves and to drive us into the arms of Jesus. Unquote. Again, that was Dr. Tim Chester from his amazing book title you can change Mm. Omaha. i'm going to wrap up with this i want to end uh this episode on a biblical response to perfectionism by quoting these encouraging words from the book titled side by side subtitled walking with others in wisdom and love by dr edward t welch again the book is titled side by side walking with others in wisdom and love and in that book dr welch says this quote those who help best are the ones who both need help and give help. A healthy community is dependent on all of us being both. We all need help. That's simply part of being human. The help we need goes beyond things like getting our house painted or finding a good mechanic. It's deeper than that. We need help for our souls. Help can be as simple as connecting with someone who understands or with someone who genuinely says, I'm so sorry. We were not designed to go through hard things alone, but it's not easy to ask for help. We spend a lot of time hiding our neediness because we are afraid of what people will think. Yet weaknesses or neediness is a valuable asset in God's community. Jesus introduced a new era in which weakness is the new strength. Anything that reminds us that we are dependent on God and other people is a good thing. Did you hear that, listener? Mm -hmm. Dr. Welch said anything that reminds us that we are dependent on God and other people is a good thing. Otherwise, we trick ourselves into thinking that we are self-sufficient and arrogance is sure to follow. We need help, and God has given us his spirit and each other to provide it, unquote. Again, that was Dr. Edward T. Welch from the book Side by Side, Walking with Others in Wisdom and Love. Omaha, anything you want to add, bro, as you take us out 
from episode 118. Now, man, it's always good to walk through this kind of stuff. We do it the way we do it uh, from a standpoint of, of clear exposition uh, of scripture. We examine the content in every way, shape and form. Uh, taking a particular issue in this in this instance with regard to this uh, episode, the issue of perfectionism and push it through the lens of scripture because scripture is sufficient for Amen. for Daryl and me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast. Welcome to Just Thinking Podcast. Podcast. Thinking, thinking, thinking.